and welcome to the other side of midnight. I'm going to be your host tonight because Richard's having power problems because they've got serious thunderstorms going on. Cynthia uh, will be my co-host, and we're going to have a good show, I hope, uh, because we're going to be talking with Dr. John Brandenburg and Dr. Mark Carlotto. Um, and we're going to be talking about the uh, the latest things going on with the Ooh, with uh, John Brandenburg's discovery about the uh, Mars and the uh, isotope that is only formed during atomic explosions. And um, I think we're going to have a good time. So I'm going to hand this over to my co-host, Kanthea. Uh, She's going to read off their bios. And, and uh, hopefully if Richard's power comes back, he'll come join us. So Kanthea, uh, would you like to step in? No, I'm happy to. So good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm very happy and excited to welcome back our guests, Mark, Dr. Mark Carlotto and Dr. John Brandenburg. I first met Mark in the early days of research. Uh, Mark Carlotto is an engineer, scientist, and author with almost 40 years of experience in satellite imaging, remote sensing, image processing, and pattern recognition. He received a Ph.D. in electrical engineering from Carnegie Mellon University and has written over 100 technical papers and seven books. Outside of his occupation as an engineer in the aerospace industry, his journey as an independent scientist has taken him to Mars and back again by way of planetary mysteries, UFOs, local history, and more recently, ancient origins and archaeology on our planet. And you can find out more about his work on beforeatlantis, all one word, dot com, beforeatlantis.com. Welcome to the show, Mark. So great to have you with us. Yeah, I know. This is like a reunion. <laughs> oh, I'm really happy about this. And our other guest tonight is Dr. John E. Brandenburg. He is a theoretical plasma physicist who's obtained his Ph.D. in plasma physics from the University of California at Davis. He's presently working on plasmas for controlled fusion and directed energy weapons. He's authored many science books, including Death on Mars, Life and Death on Mars, Beyond Einstein's Unified Field, Dead Mars, Dying Earth, and more. He's also uh, received awards, and he's written a couple of science fiction novels under the pen name of Victor Norgard. So... And you can find out more about uh, Dr. Brandenburg's work on lifeonmars.pub, P-U-B. Welcome to the show, John. So good to have you with us tonight. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here, Cynthia. (laughs) And Mark, always great to be on the show with you. Yes, and I want to... Welcome, welcome. And I want to let our audience know you'll find much more detailed bios on the show page. So I'm going to turn this back to Keith. And uh, I'm so excited to 
see how the conversation will flow tonight. I also want to let everyone know we will be joined by other researchers, including Ron Gibran, uh, Timothy Saunders, uh, of course, myself, Robert Morningstar, and take it away, Keith. <laughs> okay. So, Dr. Brandenburg. Yeah. yeah I, I was reading your paper earlier, and the whole concept is that there was a nuclear holocaust that took place on Mars, which less, you know, it left an isotope that's only created during an atomic uh, explosion or reaction. And it's rare that that could even happen, but it, you said it encompasses most of the planet? Oh, oh yeah. It's, um, Mars is very distinct in isotopes from the rest of the planets in the solar system and the solar wind. And, you know, Earth and Jupiter have very similar isotopes, but Mars sticks out like a sore thumb. And if you grind up, you know, meteorites and extract all the gases from them, especially the noble gases, they have a certain isotopic distribution. And Mars is very different from them. They all look Everything looks pretty much the same in the solar system except Mars. And Mars has an excess of an isotope called xenon-129, and it's a result of what's called R process, which occurs in only two known places, supernovas, you know, exploding stars, or in hydrogen bombs. And we know there was no supernova on Mars. Um, the... Xenon-129 appeared recently in geologic time on Mars about half a billion years ago. And along with other isotopes associated with neutron bombardment of the surface. And uh, basically something happened in recent geologic time. And that's this case about half a billion years ago. And that's just a rough estimate, by the way. Did you say None a, of these things can be done exactly right now, but... Did you say a half a million or half a billion? Half a billion, half a billion. Okay. And it, um, basically, that uh, it took a planet that looked a lot like Earth and turned it into what Mars looks like right now. The energy release was so enormous. It was roughly 10 times greater than the uh, explosion that wiped out the dinosaurs and the Chicxulub asteroid hit. Mm -hmm. And this happened on a planet only half the size of Earth. So it basically blew off most of the Martian atmosphere. And uh, Mars used to have an ocean, rivers, an oxygen atmosphere. That's why its surface is bright red, because of oxidized iron. If you look at pictures of Earth, of the Sahara Desert, or the Arabian Desert, or even Australia, you'll see vast red areas, looks just like Mars. That's because we have iron in our soil, just like on Mars, and it turns rust red when it's in the presence of oxygen. So, um, and this isotope couldn't to, be couldn't uh, be created by say, two planetary bodies and colliding or something like that? Well, 
if that was true, uh, Mars would not look like it looks. It looks like it's the. Uh, we know that, you know, and Mark can speak to this. The history of Earth is a lot more colorful than people have made it out to be. Actually, um, you know, Earth collided. The proto-Earth collided with another body about the size of Mars, and the, then the resulting body colliding bodies merged but with some leftovers that became the moon so that's why the moon is so big relative to the earth it's much bigger than any other moon in the solar system relative to the planet it orbits mars has two moons but they look like just little asteroids circling mars um basic basically there is no known no known process other than a hydrogen bomb or a supernova that could have caused this pattern of isotopes on Mars. They landed on Mars and discovered the xenon-129 excess. Mm-hmm. Most everything else in the solar system, xenon-129 is equal to another isotope called xenon-132. The two are almost always equal. Uh, But on Mars, there's two and a half times more xenon-129 than there is 132. It sticks out like a sore thumb. And they detected this when they landed the Viking landers on Mars and sampled the atmosphere at two different places on Mars. They found it at two different places. The instruments were very good. And... um, it's been a half century since they made that measurement, and they can't explain it. Uh, there was an, uh, some people talking about it 20 years after the uh, Viking landings in 1976, so they were talking about in 97, and they said, that, we can't figure it out. And then most recently, they have probes sampling the atmosphere all over again, and they called it a mystery why the Xenon-129 is so abundant on Mars. But as I said, I found in the open literature that it is the product of what's called R-process. You can look it up on Wikipedia. R-process occurs in supernova and um, nuclear weapons. Uh, Wikipedia page, third paragraph down. The only reason I I was asking the question was because um, the... You've heard of the Lost Book Inky and the Sumerian translation of the tablets that, uh, let's see, Zacharias Sitchin yeah, and the other I, translated. Keith, I, I'm, I'm very aware of these things, but I haven't been able to study them. Mark could speak to this better because he has been looking at past, you know, hidden past civilizations on on Earth, which and I believe he's found substantial evidence for that. Okay. Uh, I can't, unfortunately, speak to it. I'm I'm just a rocket scientist, Keith. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't. And John, talk. I keep it, John. Can I? I want to ask a question to John along along this line. Um, sure. You know, I. Hey, John. A great paper. Um, you know, I read an early version of this uh, a few years ago, and I reread your latest paper and. Um, 
I mean, I, I, I could talk to you for probably three hours about it. Um, Ooh, but, great. Uh, scientist to scientist, nerd to nerd. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the question I, I had is, um, you know, you, you have some calculations in there on uh, energy yield and a very interesting number on the amount of, of ejecta, uh, you know, how much material on average would have been deposited on the surface uh, yeah. as a result. Yeah, actually, but, that, uh, was, that was Please leave your message for... Excuse me. Sorry Dennis Elvin. Sorry about that. Um, one of our guests is uh, not at his phone. So let me uh, square that away real quick. So that stops messing with us. <laughs> and he's calling me, obviously. Oh, I just... Okay, guys, go ahead and continue. Hey, so okay, so John, I, I want to talk about the ejected stuff, but the question I wanted to ask uh, when you know Keith was asking you about uh, started off, you know, asking you about this is how much uh, nuclear material would it take for this to? Uh, I mean, how much based on the yield, on the energy yield, how much nuclear material was involved? Hey there. Keith? Sorry about that, Cynthia. Um, yeah. Actually. So, are we back on the show now? Yeah, we're. Everybody's here. Okay. I think Mark asked a question that didn't come through. Okay, you called me on our individual line, so. Oh, we lost John. Oh, good grief. Mark asked a question about the ejecta of uh, John Brandenburg. Maybe you need to get John back. Yeah, we lost it. We yeah, lost his I'll, wait, I'll, I'll wait for John. Yeah, I'll wait for John. In the meantime, uh, just to fill in. John, uh, you back? You back? Okay, he's back, I think. No, that's Ron. That's, you know, Ron is already on the another okay, four, three, two. I think I think that's John Brandenburg. No, that's, that, yeah, that's John on the fourth. That number. For John or Ron, am I speaking to? Huh? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Uh, Mark, just to address your question, the the results you're talking about was a, a, a study of how much ejecta a Chicxulub-like impact would have on a planet like Earth and, you know, what the ejecta blanket would be like, but these these Hello, explosions Keith. did not occur on the surface; they were airbursts. Right, right. Like so, with that, unfortunately, like Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, this does not look natural at all. So when it made so John, laugh, so uh, John, yeah. with even even if it were an airburst, would there be uh, would it affected the surface and created um you know disruption of the surface you know lifting material up and you know at that time having an atmosphere having that material be transported carried around the planet and deposited uh, uh, oh yes, as a layer of ash you know as yes, a layer of, of you know, basically fallout i guess yeah it, there is evidence of um on the far side of the planet uh, allowing, of course, that the 
bottom half of the planet is much higher by about two or three kilometers in average elevation than the north of the planet, so it would affect the, how the shock waves propagate. But it looks like the shock waves went around the planet from these two explosions, which we know from the radioactive hotspots on the surface of Mars in uh, radioactive potassium and thorium. And it looks like the shock waves came around and met on the far side of the planet and deposited a bunch of radioactive material. So um, there's also glass deposits, you know, where it's called trinitite. When they set off the first atomic bomb, they it turned um, a lot of the desert sand to glass, greenish glass. And this right. glass on Mars is etched with apparently nitric acid, which is another product of enormous uh, fireball, nuclear fireballs. But it doesn't seem to have, it doesn't seem to have dug a crater at either site. It's just very smooth. There's nothing there except a hot spot of, a relative hot spot of radioactivity. Most of the radioactivity is gone now, but, but it, you know, there's to these two hot spots in the north, and then um, a what looks like an antipode, uh, you know, a far side convergence of shock waves on the south of Mars. Uh, so it did li apparently lift up a lot of debris, and and I have to say it, the, the most biggest concentration of glass indicating this explosion, of course, in the center of it is this radioactive hotspot, is right next to Cydonia Mensa. Right, John, right. John, this is Robert Morningstar. I have a question. You said there were two airbursts over Mars that created uh, this cataclysm. Did those occur yeah. over Arabia and Utopia? Yes, uh, Cydonia, uh, well, it's Acidalia, Planitia, and uh, what's called uh, Utopia Planitia, but they're correlated with two of the sites of what look like archaeology. One at site, the one in Acidalia is right next to it's it's to the you know it's up upwind. If you calculate the prevailing winds on Mars, it's about 100 miles upwind. So all of the fallout and shock waves sort of been concentrated towards Cydonia Mensa, and then on the other side of the planet, uh, there's a smaller slightly smaller hot spot. Once again, it's just flat in the place right. where the radiation is concentrated and the glass is concentrated there too. And there's nothing there. There's no volcanoes. There's no craters. There's nothing. It's, so that's why I concluded these had to have been airbursts like at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, unfortunately. And, uh, and, um, yeah, it, it's Robert Morningstar, right? Yes. The reason I ask is that I've, I've studied Mars, and Utopia looks totally denuded, and Arabia, a very nondescript terrain, whereas the side that we know, uh, Olympus, uh, Tarsus Monte, Sidonia, Dallas Marinaris, has a lot yeah. of surface features, but there's a big eraser was taken to Utopia, and Arabia. Yeah, yeah. Well, the 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 region. There's what looks like a what used to be a 
paleo ocean on Mars, and it was discovered by myself. And I was the first one to announce it. And it's, you can tech, check Wikipedia. It's, I'm reference number one. And uh, at least they're honest about it. And it's a deep, um, you know, the, the elevation drops down into this kind of trough where the ocean used to be next to Sidonia Menza. And um, in the middle of that, is this concentration of radioactivity and around it is all this glass that's been etched by apparently nitric acid. So it's, uh, so it looks, given, pretty, it looks like a pretty strong case actually. Um, for was, what I'm proposing is that, that it happened. I was trying to get a, a, a handle on the timeline um, because yes, according to uh, what Richard had calculated with the, the way Sidonia complex was set up, that you could stand in the center of the uh, city square and look back out over the face and you have the Earth sunrise coming up there at about uh, 500,000 years ago. And ac- yeah. according to the Lost Book of Inky, um, they came here uh, 450,000 years ago. And at the time, they said they had to land on Mars to refuel because their firestones, the engines that ran their celestial chariots, mm-hmm. ran, ran off of water, and they didn't have enough water after using water cannons to get through the asteroid field by pushing the asteroids aside. But they had enough to land on Mars and refuel from the rivers and lakes that were there. So I'm trying to get a handle on the, the timing because if Richard calculated that Sidonia was built around 450,000 years or 500,000 years ago, the, so that the the Earth sunrise or Earth rise uh, would appear um, right over the face, standing in the city square, um, trying to figure out when this actually could have occurred. Because in the Lost Book of Inky, he said that the younger generation didn't understand what was going on, and they rebelled, and they found the weapons of terror. That, Sounds pretty standard. Yeah, that <laughs> that Alalu had on his craft, and they used them against one another in a war. And uh, yeah. if they had detonated those on Mars, um, then yeah, I could understand maybe that kind of stuff happening. But that would have been... That would have been maybe eight, nine thousand years ago, or maybe seven thousand years ago. Yeah, well, there's fairly recent activity on Earth. Uh, you know, the, the the number I came up with is only approximate for about half a billion years. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I will make a confession. I don't know what happened there, and I don't know exactly when it happened. Uh, we have some idea where it happened, but um, my estimates for age of the explosions are very, you know, approximate in human terms. And um, I don't know, as soon, Keith, as soon as you involve intelligent beings, the number of scenarios you can come up with just, Becomes like the stars of the sky. 
Yeah, I understand. Mark, Mark can speak to the more recent things that may have involved Mars. Mars is still, even if Mars was devastated by this half a billion years ago, it's still a very user-friendly place. There's still plenty of water. They actually had a meteorite plow into Mars basically while we were watching it, and it blew these big chunks of ice out of the soil. They're just sitting there. So the water is frozen I, underground. You know, so it, uh, it, Mars is a very convenient place to get, get water and that you can use as rocket fuel and also to sustain life. And uh, so Mars is a very convenient place, especially if you're focusing in on Earth, you want a forward base. But then, as I said, Mark can speak more to possible ET or some kind of advanced civilizations that existed far before anyone in, um, you know, mainstream archaeology believes they uh, occurred. Okay, Mark, um, you have any uh, comments on that? You know, I, I, I actually want to take this opportunity to pick John's brain because we don't have, we don't often do this, John, <laughs> brothers Paul. And you know, sure. you know, way back when, right? They, they, the uh, planetary science community was saying, well. This, this, this space can't be there because it, it would it have to be billions of years old. You know, this is based on all the old crater uh, statistics, right? I which, know. You always, know. Which, which you always you always said uh, is different at Mars than uh, at the Moon because of its proximity to the asteroid belt. So it, it my, seems kind of obvious, and other people have said this too. Right. So. So given okay, so now given you, the the nuclear hypothesis, the R process, the R process hypothesis, mm-hmm. can that provide a way of of coming up with a new calibration curve for uh, the cratering rates at Mars? Well, actually, we don't really even need that because we have a number of me- we have more than a gosh, approaching 200 meteorites from Mars now. Almost all of them, if you if you just average their ages, you come up with about half a billion years old as the average age, at least for the north of Mars. The southern half of Mars, very heavily cratered. It looks like this island's on the moon. And if you ask me why, why are they keep insisting that the cratering rate on Mars is the same as the moon, when it's it's obviously not, and it's for the same reason they keep insisting that the Mars sky is red. It's 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 just become a a doctrine. Yeah, I yeah. talked to one of the other scientists who had basically proven that uh, Mars surface age has got to be something like an average of the meteorites that we're getting from its surface. And that's about half a billion years old. So he says, just raise the cratering rate to like four times what it is at the moon. And you get, and it all works. And he said, and I keep presenting papers at conferences and publishing papers. 
and no one pays any attention, he says. <laughs> yeah, that's not surprising. Okay, guys, we're about well, a minute out from the... This way. If, 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 Mark, let me put it this way. Here's the scandal. If the surface of Mars is much younger than it looks based on lunar and you know, when the astronauts from Mars from the moon brought back rocks and they could correlate that with the pictures, so they got a this many craters per square mile equals this age, because they could have the rocks and we they had the pictures. Okay, then they just applied this blindly to Mars and and but the thing is is on Mars you have all these water channels in the rock and if Mars' surface is young, then it means all the water channels are young, too. Right. Okay, right. guys. Uh, we're at the Mars bottom of the hour. Earth-like climate up until guys, recent we're... geologic times, like half a billion years ago. That's considered recent geologic times. Okay, guys, we're at the bottom of the hour. Uh, I have to start my break. Uh, you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. And when we return, we're going to pick up where John left off. Um, we're talking about uh, the radioactive isotopes found on Mars that indicate that there was a, a nuclear catastrophe that took place. And with that, um, we'll be right back. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
of midnight um conversation's been pretty good here uh there's a things that uh kind of conflict with some of the things that are, i think i knew and i'm just trying to get a little handle on it but john is saying that this is this took place uh half a billion years ago uh but yet the lost book of inky says um there was water and rivers and lakes 450,000 years ago. So I was just trying to wonder how that worked out. So, John. Well, it, it's, it's quite possible that there was 450,000 years ago on Mars. I mean, there was an ocean. And the ocean bed is not on the old part of Mars, which is the south. It's on the young part of Mars. There are hardly any craters. And, and you know, so... It's like uh, some young person trying to uh, explain that they're nearly 30 when you find their license, license, uh, driver's license, and it says they're only 17. (laughs) Okay. Hey, John, I have another question. I have another question regarding the radiation. If the radiation is uh, highly concentrated and there's so much, so many radioactive isotopes, how likely is it possible that it's possible to colonize Mars? Are there more, less, uh, let's say, a Sidonia, a better prospect for landing and colonization than uh, Utopia and Acelia? How how dense oh, is the radiation? Oh yes, Bob. Very good question. The, the radiation. Remember, because of the Cold War, we got very very good at detecting radiation and identifying isotopes by their gamma ray spectrum uh, and because of the cold war and everything was so nuclear then uh, the actual levels of radiation on mars are higher than earth but that's because earth the, mars doesn't have a magnetic field like the earth at least not a global one and so i don't think that these when i say they're radioactive hot spots i only mean that in a very relative sense they stick out like sore thumbs because the instruments are so sensitive. But you could probably walk around on them for a year and not suffer any ill effects. I wouldn't advise it. But <laughs> well, thank you. That's that's a question that's been uh, on my mind for quite a long time. Very hey guys. Good. Go ahead, Mark. Hey guys, anybody hear me? Yeah, Ron. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you just faded out, Ron. Okay, Ron, you're you are faded so far away that you're we're not hearing you. Okay, let's pick up. Um, hey, hey, yep, hey, uh, Keith. I cannot, you know, I I didn't mean to uh, not answer. You asked me a question before, and I and I I wanted to ask uh, John something, but I wanted I would like to get back to answering your question. Or the one that John yes, please, Mark, said. answer the answer uh, Keith's question because I think it it really ties in with 
with what John's discovered here. Um, you know, um, if you look at the at um, at religious texts, in particular the Eastern uh, traditions, the the, uh, the Vedas and the Yuga cycles, um, yes. these are periods. These are periods of incredibly uh, you know, lo- incredibly long periods of time, uh, millions of years. And um, the uh, Manzatara, which is a one of these cycles, is 71 yuga cycles. A yuga cycle is, um, is 1,728,000 years. So 71 of these is 306,720,000 years. What's interesting is this gets us into the ballpark of, of yes, this, it does. Of this frame on Mars. And, yes, from, you know, in my, in, in my area of interest on Earth, it's been trying to push back our history beyond 10,000 B.C. Uh, to earlier times that begin to perhaps connect up with older traditions, uh, mythological traditions and uh, religious traditions, for example, and, you know, I think perhaps this, these dates that John's come up with is a way of maybe finding some common ground between Earth and Mars. It's something that we've been looking for in a, in a plausible way without stretching, you know, the history, the facts, the science, whatever, but coming up with something that sort of matches the data we have uh, with some, you know, a little bit of wiggle room based on, you know, myth and, and ancient legends. Um, and I think this is a really cool area of research um, that it really brings, you know, Ooh, it perhaps is. It together is. in a way. I'd, I'd <laughs> like to, to hear if you have a tentative time, time date for, you know, the Mahando Daro place where they found, uh, I guess, uh, Trinitite and also all these unburied bodies that were just Mahando in the Daro street. is rather recent. Compared to yeah, it, it happened. It, it dates back to the uh, middle of the last ice age, which is about maybe 20,000 years ago, 25. Right. OK, right. well, that's still certainly earlier than most people. I mean, I, I remember poor uh, Bill, I think it's William Shock dating the Sphinx to 10,000 years. And everybody said, oh. This is heresy. This is he should be taken out of the city gates and stoned to death. And uh, you know, and it turns out he's right. Well, it's conservative. <laughs> it's it's about fourteen thousand, as far as I what, can tell. What's interesting about the, the what's interesting about the Indus Valley sites is that uh, a lot of them uh, are uh, the current. You know, what's above ground is built over more ancient foundations. And True. Ex- yeah. That some of these sites have not have not hit bottom. In other words, they haven't found the bottom, so there's really no uh, no way of really truly dating these sites. Um, yeah, and, and that's a, and that's it, a common problem in archaeology. Uh, in 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 um, in Beyond Atlantis, a uh, book I published last year, I look at about 20 different air, uh, regions uh, in the world, and I look at the alignments of sites and. Uh, the, the whole my 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 uh, hypothesis is that um, uh, a lot of sites that cannot be explained in terms of their geometry, their alignment, um, uh, actually are consistent with a what I call a shifted pole uh, model, which is that the geographical poles sure. have shifted shifted mm-hmm. along the lines that Hapgood proposed back in the 50s. 
based on that model, based on that model, Mahendra Darrow and other uh, Harappan and, uh, and and uh, and other Indus Valley va- Indus Valley sites would be, uh, you know, tens of thousands of years old. Not not thousands, but tens of thousands of years old. Okay, so that that seems very reasonable. So much, yeah, I mean, so yeah, you, you're you're talking about an event that was, you know, uh, a couple hundred million years ago. Yeah, so. But yeah, but I'm, I'm going to recommend. By the way, that. Well, any ast- the astronauts we send to Mars be sent to places like Pompeii and Mahendra Daro to see what it looks like to be on the site of mass death, you know, complete with uh, bodies, um, you know, imprints of bodies and, and uh, things like that, uh, just to right. be acclimated, because that's, I believe that's what we're going to find on Mars, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. So we, we, I'm just trying to look at the time frames of, um, so we we have a wide range of what we can look at right now. Um, yes. That makes sense. Have they have they got a date on the, the settlements in Zimbabwe? Have, have they got any kind of date for that? Eleven to fourteen thousand. Oh, okay. Are you talking about the Homo Naledi stuff? Are you talking about Homo Naledi, the stuff in South Africa? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, uh, Brennan has it at about 11 to 14. That's pretty wide range, but at least, yeah, at least somebody there has the, at Stellenbosch has the courage to actually give it a number. Uh, but they're not sure. They just, uh, but they did find some well because fires. South Africa, you know, has all these minerals, especially gold. And if if there were some ETs, I mean, I, I write science fiction, so I have this situation where these people are trying to get help from these other aliens, and they offer them galactic credits, and the aliens say, "You got any gold?" <laughs> and one of them is a human woman, you know, and she says, you guys use gold? And he says, yeah. (laughs) And it turns out gold is not only shiny, but it's also got only one isotope. And that means it can't be traced. Hmm. Gold from the Andromeda galaxy, from Alpha Centauri, from, from Earth, from Mars, it all is the same. You can't trace it. Silver, on the other hand, you give somebody gives you a, a silver coin, you can actually trace where on Earth it came from, assuming it hasn't been tampered with, mm-hmm. because it's a mi- gold. Silver is a mixture of isotopes, but gold, one isotope. It's re, it's one. It's actually a rather unique element that way. Yeah, In but it's never a hundred percent, is it? Oh no, no, no. Yeah, so I mean, you, if you, it, know, you can go to a jeweler and they. Yeah, you can. Yeah, that's which is usually impractical. And a hundred percent gold is uh, a little too soft. But well, uh, there's other things you can mix with it. They're actually single isotopes too. I, I actually looked into that. Uh oh. Okay. What happened? Uh, that's sorry. That was my. I didn't mute my sounds for my system, so that you're uh, hearing my email sounds. Playing the piano. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, well, apparently it can be heard anyway. That's something. <laughs> the uh, I had something to say about those gullies on Mars, all the evidence of water. Yes. Uh, it conflicts yeah. with the fact that it's a very commonly pitched story lately. I just read something the other day from NASA again, uh, talking about the uh, eons of dust that is piled up on top of everything. Well, yeah, they they would have filled those in. They're not that old. They're not. And this half a billion years stuff is because they had this older model based on solar system hijinks planets busting into each other and so forth and they they can't get out of it it's kind of like they got stuck with the uh no explanation for the blue skies (laughs) until recently when they just suddenly walked away from it it was just like a year or so i know i i I, in my science fiction i have this man and woman crash on mars they're one of the first people who actually end up on mars is by accident instead of their thing to be able to see because it's covered with red dust Right. And they want to look around, and this woman screams out, "Oh my God, look at the sky, and it's blue!" And she says, <laughs> "The UFO cover-up has been over for ten years, but the Mars cover-up continues forever." <laughs> that's the trouble with lies. That's brilliant. That's the trouble with lies. They never know when or how to get out of them when they have to. You know, they're like, oh, I know. They're it's, like flypaper. Uh, they are. They're you know well. Mars sky is red because we say it is. And you say, well, how come the Hubble pictures show a nice blue sheen around Mars, you know. Like everywhere else, basically. Like everywhere else, like Earth. And they say, well, that's that's because they didn't get the memo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I agree there. Yeah. Oh, well, you got to have a sense of humor about this stuff. I mean, it's. They're trying to protect the fact that Mars was a living planet past. And they, I got an article, you know, I've submitted several articles about Mars, including this one, to journals. And one of the journals rejected it. And this guy says, because I had circumstantial evidence because Mars is red and because of the water channels and everything, you can argue that Mars had a active biosphere in the past. And this guy rejected it, and he says, "We don't need we don't need speculation about life on Mars. If anybody's going to prove there was life on Mars, we'll do it with our rovers." He said, "Oh yeah." Did you say and, acid? Did you say acidic? No, I, I just said. Uh, well, I think he was acidic. Yes, uh, oh, well, touche. He was also asinine because he was basically saying, "You know, I got my rover contract and." Uh, you know, it's got, not going to say uh, Haynes till we say it has, says Haynes, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, they won't test the life on Mars with their rowers, even though it's been 50 years. <laughs> um, that reminds me. I'll let you say this. How many of the rovers have had a radiation measurement device on them? No, no. Well, there was no. one. One. Oh, well, we don't know. And I Am I speaking to the Honorable Dick Hoagland? No. No, this is Ron Gerbron. No, this is Ron. This is a new person. We haven't been this, introduced. This is Ron, Ron Gerbron. He's, he's our yeah. general. Oh, okay, Ron, Ron. Okay, Ron, yeah. there's only one probe that I think carried a, a sophisticated uh, radiation measuring stuff, and that was, you could tell it was 
state of the art because it was launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base, uh, not military. Cape Kennedy. Yeah, wasn't launched from Cape Kennedy because they can't keep high security there. But at Vandenberg, everything is secure because they launch spy satellites. You know, mostly military. However, you ask them why are you launching from Vandenberg, and they said, uh, they said, times <laughs> with Brandenburg. They said. Oh, I don't know. We just thought it'd be cool to launch it from Vandenberg because uh, uh, the, the Kennedy launch manifest is all full. It, that's, uh, it's that's, actually a uh, lot of work to launch something all the way to Mars from Vandenberg. Oh, so it you know. is because it yeah. it's uh, uh, your the Kennedy Space Center. You launch everything, and the Earth's rotation helps you. At Vandenberg, you have to it, – it's meant to launch things into polar orbit, and that means you get – you have to have a much bigger rocket, much more money to launch something to Mars from Vandenberg. So they, they launched a classified package to Mars. It was the InSight lander, I believe. Oh, InSight, the one that landed up by the pole? Yeah. And that's yeah, the one that had the radioactive. near where all the glass was. Yeah. And, of course, radiation from the things I found would be more concentrated. Can I go back to the part about the, the life on Mars? Um, sure. There was a, a, a gigapan that Keith Laney had when we did the um, presidential briefing video with the, on Discord, and we were all showing our stuff. And... I was looking at that. I zoomed in a section up on this hill, and I kept zooming in and zooming in, and I saw something sticking up from behind this boulder. And even though they had sucked all the green out of the picture, this thing was still green. (laughs) And the texture of it looked like it was small bubble wrap. And I said, this looks like reptilian skin. And and I swear, if I could find that that photo, I'd find that again because – I want to mention that that presidential briefing is available and it's free now and it's on the page. If anyone wants to look at it, it is there on the page. What's that one? The, the one where they say that it's plausible they'll find art, alien artifacts on Mars? No, this is, this is a project that a group of us did, oh, about four or five years ago where we wanted oh, okay. to show people how to look at um, – at the photos of um, archaeological structures that have been, you know, deteriorating for millennia. And we had some really fascinating photos in there. So several of us presented our research in it. And and that video is available now on the page. Oh, very good. Very good. And, you know, and any, any archaeology you find on Mars is going to be beat up, just like archaeology on Earth is. I mean, if you see pictures of the Sphinx when it was first photographed, mm. it looked pretty pretty rough. For one thing, uh, either the Turks or the or the French, they can't they argue about which ones did it. Shot its nose off with a cannonball, apparently. Mm. Uh... And you know, it, it was vandalized and beat up by the desert and. All, it, all you see is just its neck sticking out of the ground. And, and if you look at it 
uh, from a distance you can see oh it looks like a face in a wearing this headdress egyptian headdress thing but if you get up close to it in, in general lighting it looks like hell and, mm-hmm. and, and they didn't they didn't for a long time they didn't realize there was a whole body buried underneath <laughs> it <laughs> i saw drawings of it where it was just covered in sand and you know i really love your idea that the astronaut should be required to actually look at some ancient artifacts here before they go there. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think that's a great idea. I, 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 I went to Arches Park in, in Utah, um, and I took one photograph of my wife in the foreground and stuff in the background that caught my attention, like this bust of Nefertiti up on top of this butte and this rectangular pillar that's made etched into the wall with a little stem sticking out, like with a head on it or something. And yeah. that's what caught my attention. But then years later, I see down one level down, this object vertical pillar standing on its own little pedestal. And it looks like a, another version of the balanced rock, which looks like it's a head that looks like a fish head entity. And I pointed this out to yeah. Jonathan Womack, and he finds etched into the wall to the right of that pillar this bird's head, and I didn't notice that. And I here it is, four out-of-place artifacts in one photograph that I took. And I'm going there saying all this stuff is natural. No, something <laughs> else is going on. And, and the Badlands... Why do you think they sent them all to Antarctica? The, uh, the uh, astronauts have pretty much all been there. Yeah, why would they go to Antarctica? Because there's stuff going well, on there. Well, Mark can speak to that. You know, there's this perfect pyramid down in in Antarctica. It's 10 times bigger than the pyramid at Giza, but it sure looks like a pyramid to me. Is it as big as the one in Bosnia? No. That one's an earth-built pyramid, and they're huge. They tend to be covered acres and acres. Mark, are you still there? You're with us, right? Uh, I'm still here. Um, the ones in Antarctica aren't real pyramids. They just kind of look that way just by, based on camera angle. Um, the Bosnian pyramid is has one very well-formed um, triangular uh, facet to it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think, I think it holds up to the argument that it could have been a pre-existing landform that was altered. But the ones in oh, Antarctica—that's yeah, uh, the way it looks like to me. Ron. The ones in Antarctica—it's—it's more—it's—it's um—it's uh—it's more of a stretch, and that part of Antarctica has, um, unlike other parts, has not been ice-free. Um, there are parts of Antarctica that's been ice-free, but where those are located uh, has been um, covered with ice for uh, years, as far as we know. Ron, please, oh. please mute. Yes. Hello. Are you making noise, or someone's making noise? Okay. Someone's making noise. Yeah. There's a I'm lot of hanging stuff. on my microphone. Okay, uh, Robert, Ron. are you still out there? Do you have a picture that I sent you a couple of weeks ago of Antarctica? Um. Oh, the one with the fellow standing in front of the rock, the odd rock. Yeah, uh, yeah, with what looks like two pyramids behind it. Yeah, maybe you could show uh, it to them in the Skype window or something. I don't know. Well, I, I don't have access to it right now, but I would disagree with Mark that the pyramids in Antarctica are uh, weathered landforms because we did 
We did extensive studies of uh, the the best photographs of the pyramids, and they're definitely structured. Uh, so I will, they even have the same angles. I, I respectfully I respectfully disagree with that, but I wanted to ask. Yeah, I'd be uh, open to take a look at that study. I because I, I I haven't seen it that. I, I, I yeah, well, I, I will send it to you because I was able to label. We did really extensive things on it, uh, and I was able to label. A really solid geometry and uh, blocks that look like entrances and uh, uh, causeways, all kinds of things like that. And I actually found some a video a video of the films taken by Admiral Byrd flying very oh, rapidly, and uh, he captured some pyramids that looked like they were collapsed. And uh, in 1947, and you had to freeze the frame. Uh, as he was flying by at about 120 miles an hour. So you really had to spend a lot of time with it. And perhaps we can uh, have a discussion on that a lot of, uh, a later. We're coming to the break, but I want to ask John Brandenburg about plasma uh, in, in the yeah. next hour. Okay? I'd like to have, have a few very important questions about plasma. One of my areas of expertise besides Mars is, is primarily plasma is what yeah, I do. Well, I, Definitely have a lot of questions about plasma and videos, films that I've seen, secret films from Russia of UFOs that appear to be made of plasma that seem to be intelligent. They break up, they separate, they go off flying, and then they come back, unite, and fly away. And we've heard a lot of descriptions of such phenomena. And, of course, there's ectoplasma, which is um, an experience that I've had several real ghost encounters. And I've actually been touched by ghosts, and I have some questions about that and about something that I call black plasma. So in the next hour, I hope to get some answers. Sure, we'll, we'll, we'll talk plasma. Okay. Talk plasma. All right, we're 60 seconds out from the top of the hour, and I've got to be on time for that. So you're listening to the other side of midnight. Uh, our guests are uh, John Brandenburg and Dr. Mark Carlotto. And we're going to be coming back in a second. We're going to pick up with this because it's getting kind of interesting. Stick with us. The site of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. 
Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. back to the other side of midnight. Uh, we're going to pick up again where we left off. We're talking about uh, possible nuclear holocaust that took place on Mars. And Mars is an interesting place. And also we're talking about possible life signs of life still there. I, I think there's light there. Um, when the volcano went off on Mars and it was a volcano erupting, it was not yes, condensation. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, and they they didn't want to admit it because if you're admitting that the core of Mars is still active and it's got volcanic activity going on, there's a really good chance there's living life there, and they don't want to admit that. But I think they're going to have to get up off of this because it is overwhelming evidence. And the weird thing is, after the volcanic activity started on Mars, did anybody notice that it suddenly started happening here with more of an abundance. And according to the laws of Inking, if I'm reading it correctly, whenever their planet comes back around and starts approaching the Earth, all kinds of things start taking place like droughts and, and um, volcanic activity and weather disruptions and things like that, droughts. And this happens every time their planet starts to approach back into the planet, our planet, because their planet takes 3,600 Earth years to make one orbit around our sun. 
and it returns every 3,600 years. And these weird anomalies in weather and volcanic activity and stuff like that occurs. And Mars, according to the Lost Bogengi, it started having all kinds of weather problems at one point, high winds and things like that. And Marduk, who Inky's son was stationed there as the commander of the way station, he decided to come. He asked his father if he could come to Earth because it was getting kind of bad there. So this is kind of strange that you know, we get volcanic activity on Mars, which they don't admit to. And then all of a sudden we get Tonga, we get... Uh, Oh, God, I forgot the name of the ones that's out uh, right off the, the East Coast here. Uh, and Keith, I, I got I to gotta interject that it was obvious to me that was a volcano erupting on Mars. Mm-hmm. And they kept saying, well, there's a strange cloud coming off of this one volcano, and it's stretching for 5,000 miles of it. We don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And I just thought. Oh my God! What are they afraid of? That if they admit there's volcanoes erupting on Mars occasionally, people are going to run down the street screaming and tearing their clothes off or something. Yeah. You know, right. it's like it's very, you're right. It's like, very bizarre. There's a number of orbs in the solar system that have volcanoes on them, so I don't know why they're afraid to let Mars have any. Well, there's volcanoes all over Venus that erupt. I mean, they even found lightning associated with these volcanoes and and this you know they got good pictures of this volcano erupting on mars and you think why wouldn't they talk about that wouldn't that be interesting yeah but but here's another see they don't want they don't want to admit that life wants to live anywhere it damn well pleases no no they don't it lives completely biophobic yeah. On Mars. it yeah. lives in but nuclear reactors in the reactor with the radiation and they've got uh, microbes and so forth living there that are living fine yes. with that. <laughs> yeah. Keith, Keith, with regard to your, your theory that the approach of Nibiru or Planet X may be causing these volcanic, uh, volcanic activity, I think it's perfectly logical, and it has to do with polarity and magnetic fields. All you have to do to prove this theory is take two magnets and align them positive to negative, you'll see they're attracted. But if you align them positive, positive, and uh, negative, negative, you'll feel an incredible repulsive force. So it's possible that the the polarity of this planet X or Nibiru is opposite that of our, our planets, inner planets in the solar system. And so as it approaches, that uh, antagonism would start to create fluctuations in the internal structure, the magnetic field, the nickel iron core, the nickel iron ocean at the center of the earth. And there certainly would have to be upwellings. Not only that, we have induction. Whenever you move metallic objects through magnetic fields, they induce electrical activity. So I think that there is a a physical foundation to to your theory there. I'm thinking it may just be uh, gravitational because their planet is a big red ring planet and mm-hmm. um, and they're bigger than us so you know on a big planet you're going to grow ring. bigger okay. yeah. well, I suspect that gravitation and magnetism are intimately related so mm-hmm. I, I have a term 
gravito magnetism because if UFOs are uh, altering, uh, neutralizing the force of gravity, and we have uh, they have tremendous electromagnetic effects, then there is some uh, basis uh, for this theory. I'd like to get to the questions about plasma next. On July 1st of this year, I'm going to be celebrating, commemorating my 50th anniversary of the practice of Tai Chi Chuan. And the correct pronunciation is Tai Chi, as if it were a J, but the energy mm-hmm. that we're practicing is called Qi. Now, Qi yeah. in Chinese means steam, and in, in the Chinese concept, the life force in the body is a living steam. The G means polarity. So a way of uh, translating Tai Chi, Tai Chi means supreme. So supreme polarity, another power uh, translation is supreme ultimate power. Now in 1975, my Tai Chi master, Grandmaster Cheng Man Ching, passed away in Taiwan. And before I knew of his passing, he appeared to me in New York, scared the hell out of me as he approached me. And as fear uh, took over, he said to me, don't be afraid, Robert, nothing can harm you. So I trusted him. I know it was him now. And he came over and he touched me. Now, I'll tell you, folks, seeing a ghost is one thing, being touched by a ghost is another. And this has happened to me several times. This opened the channel. So you you gentlemen are physicists. I'm a metaphysician. I am trying to find the bridge between physics and spirit, to be quite blunt. So my experience is that... Very reasonable thing to to seek. Um, Thank you. you. I'm I'm pretty much just a straight uh, standard model scientist, uh, you know, as far as physics is concerned. Um, Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of work with plasmas, I, I make uh, I patented a plasma rocket engine that runs on microwaves and uses water as uh, water bay pellant, and it's flying in space now. It's called the it's on the Vigor Ride Five. It's called the MET thruster, using mm-hmm. water. It's sent up there by Momentus, and it's performing successfully. So, uh, unfortunately, the patent had lapsed. That, you know that I made with the company I was working with a long time ago. So, but I still have bragging rights, as they say down here in Texas. Yeah. Uh, we also made, we also made uh, for the Air Force. They called us in at one point, and uh, they wanted us because we were good at making balls of plasma in these microwave thrusters. They wanted us to make ball lightning. And they said, we're going to give you a bunch of money to make ball lightning, but you can't call it ball lightning. So we came up with the name PIA, PIA, as after Pia Zadora, actually. It's persistent ionization in air. And we started making it in microwave <laughs> ovens. And finally, we made this, we called it a, a dog house. We made this big uh, microwave oven to run on industrial microwaves, the kind they use to cook like a ton of bacon at a time. And or dry we out London for ships. As big as soccer balls. And we, it made so much ultraviolet. We were wearing goggles to protect our faces. But, Mark, you can you understand this being Italiano. 
you know, I'm working with DePetro, and he's he's he was just amazing uh, as a mechanical and electrical engineer. And anyway, so he he and I are helping to run this experiment up in New Hampshire with this at this big microwave generator. So we make these balls of fire of ball lightning, basically stuff as big as soccer balls, and they're bouncing around in this big chamber about uh, two and a half yards on the side, a cube. And so then we we thought, okay, we've we've done it. So we packed up everything and left, and we went back down to home back in Virginia. I went to uh, Virginia, and he went to Maryland. So he walks in the door and sees his wife. He had this beautiful house in Virginia, in uh, Maryland, and he sees his wife. His wife says, where the hell have you been? And he says, well, I've been up in New Hampshire with Brandenburg making ball lightning. And she says, well, why have you got a suntan? <laughs> and he looked at the looked at the mirror by his you know front door entryway, and he had this white stripe across his face where the goggles had been, and his cheeks and his forehead were bright red. So he immediately called home, and I had just walked in the door. He says, "John, John, look at your face in the mirror." So. You know, I, I go in the bathroom and look at my face, and sure enough, I got this white stripe across my face and uh, sunburn on my forehead and my cheeks. So we got welder sunburn from this stuff. So, by the way, if you see any ball lightning lying in your backyard after a thunderstorm, leave it the hell alone. <laughs> John, <laughs> have you ever, in working, with plasma, in working with plasma, have you ever had an intimation that the plasma had intelligence or sentience. I've heard of well, people encountering plasma was, responding to thought. Well, one of our sayings was, is the, the plasma is alive and you've got to let it do what it wants to do. You just have to kind of persuade it to do what it is you want it to do. And and uh, so we, we actually, because the plasma, um, like, the first time we made it, we made it by accident. Then we had to, had to take two weeks to recreate the exact accident that we did, and then we finally did it. Mm-hmm. And and it was as if it was responding to our thoughts. I mean, I'm I'm exaggerating a little bit. We finally got it so we could just push a button and boom, boom, boom. These balls of plasma fly out of this, uh, for, you know, this generator we had, and and bounce around inside this microwave oven. Well, the thought, and, occurred uh, to me, the thought occurred to me to ask you about that experiment when it was bouncing around inside, uh, inside the chamber. Did you have a sensation that perhaps it was trying to escape, like a prisoner in a, in a jail cell might want to escape? Oh, and... yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, again, we had the definite feeling it was trying to get out and come out and tear us another asshole. <laughs> <laughs> you know, John, is that the MJ-12 documents discuss uh, a kind of extraterrestrial that they describe as transmorphic entities, that they are made of pure mind energy that has a curiosity about our world, and that they are able to tunnel through interdimensionally and arrive here and transform themselves into any object 
or organism, uh, basically shape-shifting, that they can consolidate into solid matter or they can consolidate into uh, animate matter. So as I said, I have had experiences with ghosts. And my explanation Uh is that ghosts are made of plasma. And I've had experiences with what we might say an anti-ghost, which is not a white apparition, but a black one. And so I was positing that there might be something that we call black plasma. Because when light strikes this entity or this substance, it does not reflect light. It absorbs all the light that comes upon it. And yet it can go through a metamorphosis, transmogrification, and change its shape, as we would say a shapeshifter. And that comes from an experience that I have had twice, three times in my life, where I have attacked by what is called the banshee. So I want to have a scientific, metaphysical bridge to be able to explain these things. So I wonder, can you conceive of something called black plasma? Uh, I, the plasmas I have dealt with um, were like air plasmas or else very, very thin plasmas like fu- uh, approaching fusion conditions. Yes. Now, those become very dark, and you can see, right, you know, they don't glow at all anymore. They're, they're almost uh, dark. They're almost dark. But they're not, they're not absorptive. It's like you can't see them anymore. They're kind of invisible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just riding on the magnetic lines of force. So I've never, I've never encountered in any of the work I have done um, anything like you described. But, you know, we all have had psychic experiences. Yes. I've had two people I was very close to pass away. And been in locales where they frequented, and I, I felt their presence, and I basically, uh, you know, tried to bid them peace, you know, be at rest, be at rest. Yeah. I know, I know, an aeronautical engineer who worked for Boeing for many years. He's also a Jungian psychologist. His name is Gregory Sova. He lives in British Columbia. He won't mind me telling all of this because he's appeared on this program. And Gregory, when he was 12 years old, was sitting in a church in, uh, in Canada. And he yeah. said that he saw an orb, a white luminosity, come in through the stained glass window above the altar. It came down over the altar, went down along the floor. It went along the floor, came up the aisle, and it stopped in, in the pew where he was sitting. It came across the floor. It entered his shin. And as it passed through his body, it entered his shin and moved up his leg and moved up his body. And he could feel it moving through his body. It went into his head, emerged from his forehead and drifted out and then went out back through the window. I believe that is one of these plasmic entities. that we're Yeah, I, 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 I can't say I've ever had anything like that happen. I would find that deeply terrifying if it did. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, my own experiences were just feeling the presence of somebody who I was, you know, very people I loved yes. who had passed away unexpectedly and were not at peace. And I, 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 I bade them peace. 
Well, I had, I had the experience uh, as well. Uh, one of the worst experiences of anyone's life is the loss of your mother. And it was yeah. a very a wearying week for me, you know, having to go through that. And uh, after seven days, I lay down in my bed here in this apartment. And I, uh, I sleep with a sleeping mask. And I was in the dark. And I felt someone walk in and come to the side of my bed and touch my shoulder. When they touched my shoulder, I, became, I was paralyzed. I couldn't move. And then I felt something entering my body. I felt like a tire being filled up with air. That's the best analogy that I can uh, give to, to a sensation that I experienced. Something, a gas or a magnetism, was entering through the point of contact in my shoulder and filled up the right side of my body and filled up my right lung and moved down the right side and when my body was half full, the tank half full, white light sure. exploded. White light exploded inside my body. And then I felt white lightning coring up my spine from my tail to just behind my heart. Like a tornado of white light just went. <sighs> and huh. at that moment, I realized it was my mother. But the presence was even greater. And I said to myself, this is my mother, but this is more than my mother. And then, and then when I had that thought, as I said, I was paralyzed. So I called out, mother. I was able to vocalize with my breath. And that broke the paralysis. And the presence moved away slowly. The next morning, I got a call that my stepfather had died that night. And so I believe that it was more than my mother. And so it was both my parents, but they loved me very much and came to say goodbye to me. I told this story to a lady who was raised in the Greek Orthodox tradition. And yeah. she said, Robert, do you know what that was? I said, well, I thought it was my mother. He said, she said, in the Greek translation of the Bible, they say that when the Holy Spirit. In English, they say the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and came upon them. But when you read the Greek translation and translate it literally, it says the Holy Spirit came upon them and inflated them. And that is exactly what I felt. I was being inflated with an energy that was spiritual, immaterial, and then it became a luminosity that erupted in light in my body. I have a theory. I know where this stuff's coming from. It's a dimensional. It's a dimensional crossover. Yes. Well, it's. it's I mean, I, I I certainly believe that there. Ahead, we sir. have different layers of uh, reality, uh, just like there different stations on an FM dial, you know, I mean, yes, radio stations, radio signals. And, and uh, just the same way, I believe there can be coexisting realities. Um, I, you know, like one of the things that's come up is the Skinwalker Ranch. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I talked to one of the people who was going up there to explore and, they'd been exposed to radiation while they were up there. And I said, don't go back there. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, this is not a good place to go. Right. Everybody's absolutely resolute. They don't want to know where they come from. This is, well, it's very, listen. Yeah. 
I, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't, I'm sorry, I wouldn't put in a sentence. Ron, your phone keeps breaking up every time you start talking. We'll give you the air, but it's just a day. Because everybody else is talking at the same time. Can you hear no, me? No, it's not. Am I clear? Okay. Go ahead, Ron. I could give up. Can you hear me? No, you're fading out, Ron. You're you're digitally fading out. Okay. Um, I have a question for Dr. Carlotto. Um, I think the human soul is a plasma embedded in our material substance, and that uh, that's what I think. Okay. All right. Back to you. I have a question for Dr. Carlotto. Um, you know, working at. Uh, working for doing uh, Landsat satellite spot imaging, you must have come along and found a lot of weird-looking things in uh, Landsat satellite photos. Uh, have you come across anything that's given you pause about uh, its construction or uh, its nature being artificial rather than natural? Un- unmute. You there? Uh, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, now I hear you. Yeah, Mark, we can hear you. Uh, in Landsat, um, not, not really. Um, I mean, Google Earth perhaps, yeah, but, um, you know, I mean. What have you come across on, in, in Google on Earth, Earth? On Earth, I mean, we, pardon? What have you come across in Google Earth that's given you pause? Well, I mean, with with Google Earth, I, I mean, it's 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 our planet, and you know, it, 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 it's not you know uh, uh, an existing civilization was a prior civilization, and there's features that look uh, natural, but some of them are artificial, and structures that look you know, and, and vice versa. And but you know, the thing is, on on Earth, you don't really waste a whole lot of time with that because you can you can go there and you can find out. Um, you know, Mars is the more interesting problem, planetary bodies, the moon, uh, because we haven't really been able to go there. We don't have any ground truth. We don't have any culture. We don't have any cultural context on earth. You do. So I haven't really, um, you know, explored it, uh, on earth as much as that, that, that aspect as much as I have on, on Mars and on the moon. Uh, it's a different sort of a different problem. Well, what did you have in mind? Well, I was, I, I was, uh, curious about what you might have seen from some satellite photos that uh you know like the the badlands guardian they've known about that since 1937 and the badlands guardian is uh, they're saying that's natural it's natural but it's got too many details in it the shoulder comes out to our right parallel ridges that run down the side and the one Closest it, to the neck, further the neck. Yeah, that's true. That that's true. But you know, you look at the context, and it and it it it, it fits into a into a landform, into a geological feature, an extended feature, uh, within which it makes a lot of sense. Uh, in other words, when you look at it in the context of that feature, it's it's not terribly unusual. It's yeah, it's, it's remarkable how when you isolate it, how much it looks like a native figure, right? But when you look at it in the context of, of, of the geology of that part of Canada, it's not unusual. It's sort of like a lot of these geomorphs that are being, uh, you know, discovered on Mars. Um, some of them are quite remarkable um, 
in isolation, but you know, a lot of them, and this is sort of the problem I've had, a lot of them, when you look, when you step back and you look at the surrounding context, it's like everything in that area kind of is oriented that way. And, you know, on Mars is something called the crustal dichotomy. And that explains yeah. the alignment of a lot of natural features. So it's kind of a, it's, the answer is kind of complicated. It depends yeah. on where you're looking and, and what is know, the what, crustal dichotomy? Okay, I, I understand that, but we're we're like 30 seconds out from me going to break. So um, I'm going to come back to you with that, Dr. Carlotto, because uh, there's something I want to ask you about. Uh, you're listening to the other side of midnight, and we'll be back in a few seconds, and hopefully uh, I'll get an answer from Dr. Carlotto when I tell him about what the uh, what's next to the Badlands Guardian. All right. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. If you're in the hyperdimensional, one thing you'll find is essential is our club, 19.5. It's a hyperdimensional storage case, a treasure trove of outer space, our club. 19.5 All the data we've accumulated to find here titled and collated Why don't you just drop on by and give our club a try If you're in the hyperdimensional the other side of midnight. Uh, I was asking Dr. Mark Carlotta if you see anything strange in the uh, a lot of the geosat photographs, uh, Landsat satellite photographs of planet Earth, and I brought up the Badlands Guardian. Um, 
But uh, I'm going to ask him now, uh, Dr. Carlotto, are you familiar with the Badlands Guardian Companion, which is another glyph or whatever you want to call it that looks like the Badlands Guardian, but it doesn't look Native American. It looks more like a Viking that's like 1.37 miles to the northwest of the Badlands Guardian? I have not seen that, no. Yeah, you need to check that out. It That is also perfectly aligned north, just as the Badland Guardian is aligned perfectly north. And both of these objects do not belong there. Uh, when, I, when I was dealing with the Badlands Guardian, I was showing my friend the vest, the neckband that's on his neck, and he says to me, I'm just surprised it's got an eyelid. And that's too many details for something that's supposed to be natural. And I could see if it was, you know, the curve of the vest that curves under his neck, if it was sawtooth, broken, uh, serrated, or something, I could say, yeah, you know, nature made that up, and it just looks like it's a perfect curve. But it's it's perfect. It's not broken or serrated or anything like that. And and then you go 1.37 miles to the northwest from the eye of Badlands Guardian, and boom, right there at this intersection of the roads crossing, there is this big object. It's just, just like the Badlands Guardian, but it looks like a Viking with some kind of long brim helmet on, and the, the profile, it's a profile, and the torso, I'm like, it's... It's kind of strange you got two out-of-place artifacts in one location that close together. And you, you need to see that. Um, yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to check it out. You know, there's a, there's a, lot, of, there's a lot of examples of these um, upward-facing, these biomorphic figures. There's the Blythe and Taglios in California, uh, the Atacama Giant right down in uh, South America, and, and many others. And, you know, I think... I think the, the question is, because uh, some of them are undeniably uh, um, artificial. I mean, some are like, well, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but some are clearly artificial. The Nazca line is an even better example of something, an extended feature that uh, seems sure. to have been designed to be viewed from above. But what does that imply? Does it imply that it was constructed for for the gods? Uh, to express an idea, um, to uh, communicate with the gods. Um, yeah, I remember being at a conference and talking about this, and someone came up to me and said, well, you know, a lot of the Native people, um, they, they take various, um, you know, mind-altering substances, and they astral project, and they have these spirit journeys and so forth, and perhaps they're meant to be viewed during these, these, uh, ex- these experiences that they're, they're having. And so it's like, you know, without, again, you know, I was talking earlier about a context, without some kind of cultural context, it's really hard to, it's really hard to say either way. Um, And that's the key. That's, I mean, as I see it, that's kind of the key problem, right? Uh, What, the ones that are clearly artificial, what, why were they made? What, what was the purpose? And what if uh, they were made by uh, ETs who were trying to do that? To, to relate to the people that they were trying to make contact with or did have contact with because the Native Americans knew about the Badlands Guardian. They knew it was there. 
if and, my yard started growing faces, I'd be terrified. I wouldn't be inclined to think that they were somebody I should want to hang with. Ron, these people had. No, I'm being serious because there is a, there's like nobody wants. I could just hang up. I'm sorry, but psychologically and in the human head, and Mark, you probably know this. The uh, we have a special circuit recognizes faces. It's the most primal image we have. It's part of the fight, fight or. You know, Ron, stay or, stay or go thing. I don't and, think Ron, right. Ron. I don't think you were here when I said there's no such thing as mathematical pareidolia. Okay, and that's this is part of what I'm talking about. Well, I, don't, I wouldn't even know what math, mathematical pareidolia is. You're right, but math is or it isn't. Pictures? There we is no Ron. There is no what? math. Is no. I think I see this in the math. It is yes or it's no. I didn't bring up math. I know, but that this is what I'm talking about. And when you start having two objects that close together, both perfectly aligned north, and you look at them and you can see there's too many details in them, you got to start to look at the odds. Is this natural or is this artificial? Now, there's it's too perfect. Keith, what's your hypothesis? I mean, a Viking yeah. and a native and a native figure. Well, so what? Yeah, what, what would the hypothesis be for that? Why would why would anyone construct those in, in particular at that location? Well, one. I'm just playing. I just want to be sort of play devil's advocate. I understand. Is, you know, off the of people say to me, right? And the way Please. of sort of testing your hypothesis. Okay. It, the reason why someone would do that, if if I was coming to another planet and I needed to to make contact with the people, I could make something that would give them something that they could relate to. I have to show it to them because they obviously they didn't have flight at that point in time, but there was a way to be able to show it to them. And if I created it for them, just like the lines of NASCAR, they built them, but we think we, we think we built them so they could see it. But what if those were if those were symbols for the people who could fly and they looked at them and they were guide guideposts or like symbols on a runway, you know, like in four yeah. saying, this is the way sure. to, you got to go to land or whatever. We don't know why they were built. We have no idea what the concept was behind it, but to have two objects like that in in that area and the town that is to the also to the northwest called medicine hat and the badlands guardian just happens to be wearing what looks like a indian medicine hat it we don't know who actually created that and this is the questions that we have to ask ourselves who built it why did they build it and we got to stop taking credit for stuff that we didn't do our ancestors. Sorry, didn't Keith, do. wait, wait, wait. Who built which? The medicine, the hat thing, which is the sombrero, sombrero business, is really remarkable, and that's a natural feature. No, I, I never heard anybody claim it was anything but a natural feature. What? Wait, wait. What, what's a natural feature? The Badlands Guardian. You know, you said medicine hat. Yes, and the the fed, there's what there's a stand there's a standing rock there that has this or a balance rock where the thing on top looks like a sombrero. And it's really extraordinary, but no one 
claims that it what well, isn't a natural feature. Okay, where are we talking about? Because when you say the balanced rock, I'm thinking Utah and what's sitting up on top of that. Well, I'd rather talk about the balanced rocks on Mars, but there is one near Medicine Hat. That's where the name came from because of that balanced rock. The one on top flares way out, and it's really cool. Look it up on the internet, but it's it's a natural feature. Sometimes they are. Okay, I'm, some some are natural features, but when you look at the balanced rock in Utah, okay, this got that, that got facial issues that, uh, uh, in, embedded in it. You got an eye, you got a slit for a mouth, you got something like a helmet that it's wearing, and then when you look what's behind it, that pillar behind it. It's got an elephant's head in it with the trunk coming down. It's got something that looks like an Easter Island statue etched into sure. it, some other animals. And I'm going, what the heck is an elephant's head doing in something in Utah? And there's no elephants in we Utah. We had elephants wandering around in that area of North America 8,000 years ago. And who would put it into a pillar like that? Obviously, somebody, somebody was around 8,000 years ago. And they and they yeah. built they built this huge pillar and the balanced rock all from what? According to eight thousand years ago, we were hunter gatherers and we didn't have the ability to do any of that. Right? So who built it? And that's not the only stuff that's there in Utah. It's stuff scattered everywhere. Every time I turned around I kept seeing stuff going, People don't see these things. When that when that Triangular monoliths showed up, and everybody flocked into the area to see that tall silver triangular, uh, triangular pillar. Well, that was um, made by some. Yeah, and then some that, hey, hey, I don't care who made it. All I know is that on the left side of that photograph that came out of there, I'm looking at it and I'm going, nobody sees the freaking puma head sticking out the wall over there. And then I see this wide sweeping S curve on the right side of this thing into the wall with this hole up in the corner, and I couldn't figure out what that was until one of these these uh, guys that work with the the land office or whatever was there. They take a shot looking down into that valley from up on top of this mesa, and what do you see? You see a freaking large cat head to the right of this thing etched into this wall. It's bigger than the puma head. And nobody sees this stuff. And then other pictures come out, and you know, it's sitting on the shelf. Nobody sees it. Then the first person is wrong. And sitting on the shelf is a sculpture of an owl, and it's a 3D owl sculpture. Good. It's sitting on the shelf, and I'm looking at it, going, and nobody sees that. And then look to the right of it, and here's Why paintings. Why do you say nobody sees it? Because I, I, nobody I, said anything. Nobody has said a word about it. That's what. Really irritates have you pointed, me. Have you pointed it out to anyone in real time yes. live yes. there, and they said, "I can't see anything." No, or the people they say, "Oh yeah, there's a cat." No, yeah, I've what I've showed people say? the pictures, and they're going. Not the photographs, the th- being actually there. Uh, being actually there, no. But if I was there and yeah. I was standing there, I would notice the puma head. And if I looked over in the section where the painting on the wall was where the owl sitting on the shelf, I would have noticed that. But when you're looking at that cat head, you can't see it unless you're standing up on top of that mesa looking down into it, looking down into that valley. Point of order. I mean, we all know there's intelligent life on Earth. I mean, 
at least on on occasions you know and the you know there's been a lot of stuff there and and uh you know it, they could have created a lot of stuff that we haven't seen but but you know mark and i have been you know mark is now looking at earth but but the main focus of our research together was on Mars, and, and Mark just did a, just an amazing job on the uh, images that they were getting from the surface of Mars. And you know, here's here's a here's a face, and here's a pyramid near it. And then we go to the other side of Mars to a place called Galaxis Chaos. I love that that they named it that, even though. You know, uh, they used to just call it Utopia, and then they, after I found the two faces there and NASA found out about it, they named it Galaxis Chaos, meaning someone's galaxy was thrown into chaos by these pictures. But anyway, Mark, yes, talk talk to us about the uh, the stuff you imaged on Mars, especially the uh, you know the the three dimensional reconstructions you did of the face of Cydonia. And then, you know, we were able to rotate that, and it looked like the Lion Man from Wizard of Oz. Um, and, of course, when we posted that at a conference, a NASA official or JPL person attacked Vince DiPietro. He could have charged him with assault. In fact, I stopped the guy, and DiPietro told me later, he said, John, you should have let him hit me. <laughs> then I could have sued his ass. Oh, then you got lots of money. Did anyone look at the pictures in the picture section? There's a very nice version of the um, uh, Europeans photo of Cydonia region. I was thinking you guys should yeah. refer to it at some point. I would like to ask Mark Carlotto to really tell us the history, because uh, the history of your discovery of the face on Mars and then the detective work that it took for you to find the second picture, which NASA denied existed. And while I'm at it, I'd like to ask Keith to post uh, my items so we can discuss my discovery of aspects of the face on Mars as well. But first I'd like to hear the official history of those discoveries and after the denial that the second picture existed from Dr. Carlotto. So, uh, so that was actually uh, Vince and Greg. Uh, they discovered uh, yeah, both original and, and the second. Mm-hmm. Right. So, okay. so yeah. So, so you know, those, those guys did the seminal work. And uh, Randy Pozos published a great book, The Face on Mars, and it talks about the independent Mars investigation that John and, and Dick uh, were and, and others are a part of. I joined after that. Yeah. Uh, I met uh, Tom. Uh, but uh, Tom Roundberg, who uh, so I yeah I got I got in touch with Tom Roundberg and Tom actually provided me with some data tapes and you know my 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 uh, my purpose was I felt you know when I first saw the imagery it's like there's something to it I you know I read everything NASA said about it I wasn't convinced and I thought to myself okay if this is real there's got to be some objective criteria and so that's that's really the the basis of the work i did uh, i did work in shape and shading sh- uh, that showed that it wasn't an optical illusion uh yeah. i have a seven-year correspondence with carl sagan and sagan uh, and and uh, our our dear colleague brian o'leary 
passed away a number of years ago. Uh, Brian and I worked uh, on this stuff, and we showed. And it was, to, and I have a letter from Sagan saying that he agrees with um, with our results that it's not a trick of light and shadow. Um, and that was based on you know doing doing work and getting stuff published in in uh, in, in peer reviewed journals. Uh, beyond beyond that, it was like uh, you know they were saying, well, okay, so it's a it's a it's this funny looking mesa. It's not any different from the other surrounding mesa. So it's like, okay, well, let me look at the geomorphology. And I developed some uh, some tests to compare the structure of the face to the other mesas and landforms, and I was able to show that it's it's quantitatively different. So you know, John was talking about the wizard of, the Wizard of Oz and, and the cowardly lion. I'm you know, I, in a way, I'm kind of a coward. I have to, yeah, I, I, I feel like I have to. I have to have data that I can that I can I can rest uh, an argument on. I, I can't. I'm not. I'm not. Even though I'm Italian, um, and I can wave my hand. <laughs> not when it comes to science. I have to have some some good data, and so that's been the basis of the work I've done. So I I, I don't really stick my neck out too far. I mean, if I speculate, I'll tell you I'm speculating. But when it comes to the face, I think there's some pretty solid quantitative evidence that it's different. That it's not a trick of light and shadow. And it's an architectural feature. Um, and yes, um, I'd like and, to know, know here. And, and Kinthea and Kinthea can 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 uh, corroborate it based on her interpretations that that uh, very much agree with with my own. So um, it kind of comes full circle. Yeah, so, I just Mark, like to mention it. In, I'd like to mention that in those early days, there there was a, a disagreement whether it was a trick of light and shadow. And De Pietro and Greg Molinar spent so much time to find that second photo. And it, at that time, you know, we just had those photos. And I remember Richard describing to me, well, you know, I wonder what it would look like if we were in the city of, he was calling it Cydonia, and we were looking at the face. And so that was why I had constructed the set up a sculpture to simulate the two sun angles and it became the cover of the first book. And it was as an artist to experience the face on Mars, to actually go in and sculpt it myself and try and match those shadows over and over again and again and again. And that was how I met Mark, because then Mark came onto the project and he did it with the computer. And it was very, I have to say, it was very satisfying and gratifying <laughs> to find that our work matched. And so uh, to, to corroborate it through a computer and through, you know, hand sculpting, I think it, it was a remarkable event. Yes, yes, indeed. I'm I'm waiting for uh, Keith to post my items because uh, I don't know if Mark or Dr. Brandenburg have seen my work on the face on Mars. I took the 1998 photo, the slant range photo that NASA was forced to take, and I rectified it and made it upright. Now, when I I looked at it and I it happened on April 15th of 1998, on the night the Titanic went down. I stayed up all night keeping a vigil. And then I started working on it at about 2.30 in the morning. And my eyes were open to it. So what I did, and I call it geometric decryption of the face on Mars. I, bisect, I rectified the face. 
I stretched the, 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 the narrow side, let's call it, to uh, even it out. Then I rectified it so we were looking at it face on. I split it right down the mir- middle, and I mirrored each side. The right side mirrored the head of a lioness. The left side mirrored the face of a man with a beard with a conical hat. And then I stood staring at the, the bearded man with the conical hat. So I said to myself, you know, I really look like the, the shrouded Turin. And then something said to me, just flip it. Just flip it. Don't do anything else. Rotate it 180 degrees. When I did so, it turned into the head of an eagle or a falcon. Uh, later on, I went back to the original face. And instead of doing a bisection at 50% each side, I did a, a golden section, a 1.618, 1.619, and it produced the face of an ox. And when that face came out, I realized that the face on Mars is actually a ge- geometrically encrypted icon that has four other faces embedded in it to be decoded, you might say, and it reveals the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an eagle, and the face of an ox. And those are the four figures that are described in Ezekiel's vision when the whirlwind comes down and the spaceship lands. The so-called cherubim that came out had each of them four wings, and they each had a particular peculiar helmet that had the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an eagle, and the face of an ox. And those four symbols migrated symbolically into the images that are associated with the writers of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I'm hoping that uh, we get these figures up. And there's another, there's several items in there that are really very entertaining. They deal with the presidents of the United States since FDR and their knowledge of extraterrestrial technology. There's one in there that's called Five Horrifying uh, UFO experiences of the military, and there is a plasma-related event there that happened to some Russian soldiers who saw a UFO and fired upon it, and they brought it down. And the the aliens were not too pleased, and they opened up on the Russians and turned them to stone. And this comes from a CIA document that I found there. Uh, Edited in the blue book files. So I wanted to say to Mark. And turn to stone? Yes, Come turn on. to stone. They turned them I into limestone. Okay. I want to see that with Providence. Well, you can read the CIA Providence. report. That's all the Providence you're going to get from me, Ron. But anyway, the question uh, well, well, has it got yeah. any? No, you can't make outrageous statements and just walk around, walk past them because they sound. I'm just cool. telling you, the I'm CIA sorry. is the one that made the statement. Okay, John? Or Ron? Okay. Okay, give me a name. Give me a name on it. I'll have a check. Okay. Okay. All righty. We're about uh, four minutes out from going to the break. But um, for those who are listening, uh, if you go to the fast links and you click on uh, my lane, you go to the other side of midnight.com, go to the show page, scroll down till you see the fast links, click on my name. Go down to items 7A, 7B, and 7C. What you're looking at when you get there is you're going to see what they couldn't see in the first place, which was the shadowed side that NASA never wanted to take a good picture of. 
So the European Space Agency, they came along, they took a better picture. So now you can see the side that was in shadow. But then what did these rocket scientists do? They put it out upside down and they said, oh, see, there's nothing there. And so NASA, not wanting to be outdone, they took a better picture and they put it out. But what did they do? They put it out upside down and said, oh, see, there's nothing there. Both of these scientists, organizations, know that this thing is oriented towards north, offset to north by 19.5 degrees. So how do they come along and decide they're going to turn this thing upside down and nobody's going to recognize it? In 7A, 7B, and 7C, you're looking at the face. 7A, it doesn't have the overlay over it. But on the right side is a drawing that a coworker of mine did in 1979. It has nothing to do with the face. Nothing to do with the face. It was an art class. And when I saw it for the first time in her house, I said, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at a profile of a face on the right side, not a head-on. And that broad nose is part of the lion's face in the upper left-hand quadrant. And at 7B, you go to 7B, you'll see the outline that I do, just outlining. I didn't add anything to this. There's an upside-down check mark right where the ear should be. The eye comes over at the right spot. Neck comes down, curvature for where the collarbone should be, chin. I said, there's too many details in this representing a profile of a face, looking at it from the side. And I can't understand why nobody sees that. But once you've seen it and you understand it with the outline, it's still there. Even in the European Space Agency photo, in NASA's photo, in anybody else's photo of Sidonia, they're still there. So I'm going to get us to taking start to take us to uh, break here because um, I've kind of shut off the other guys so I could uh, tell my little story. But I want you guys to keep in mind um, 8A and 8B show the Badlands Guardian, which is one of the things that I've been pointing out to. So take a look. I'm trying to post Robert's stuff as quickly as possible but I also have to run the brakes. So you're listening to the other side of midnight and we're coming up to the top of the hour and we'll be back and I'll unmute these guys so they can talk to you instead of interrupting me. All right. Thank you. The other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. The 
the other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. side of midnight uh i'm gonna bring these guys back um and i'm gonna let my co-host kick in and bring them back Cynthia. oh thank you keith <laughs> so i had a question for mark you know we've been looking at um these ancient structures on mars and on earth and I know that the group, the team has tended to think that the Martians came here. And I'm wondering in your explorations of the planet, if maybe it didn't go the other way around. Well, you know, uh, it, it, it's a very interesting question because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of at the point now, I feel like I'm changing my mind. Um, I, 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 you know, so much of what we do is that we're, we're, we're you know, I think Carl Sagan said something like, uh, "There's, you know, unquestionably, there's intelligence involved here." It's, it's, the question is, uh, what side of the telescope it's on? Is it on our side or the other side? In other words, is it is it the, is this stuff crafted for us, or are we, you know, interpreting structure perhaps where it's not where it's not there? Uh, you know, the problem with, with with all this stuff is that there's really we only have one data point. Us, we're the only intelligent. Yeah, yeah, a well-established life form. I mean, there's a lot of speculation, a lot of anecdotal evidence, but in terms of of hard evidence, we're you know there's one data point, and you know, SETI, the SETI scientists try to extrapolate from that to you know to say there's billions of planets out there, and it's like based on what it's really it's really uh, it's speculation, it's informed speculation, but it's speculation nonetheless. Um, so you know, getting back to your question, Cynthia, I think. Um, uh, you know, my my journey in the last few years has been looking at Earth civilizations and going from 10,000 to perhaps, you know, one or two or perhaps 300,000 years ago uh, to try to fill in what might have been happening here in terms of possibility of previous advanced technological civilizations on Earth, uh, civilizations that would have been wiped out by um, that have been talked about, you know, whereas, you know, so in other words, our civilization is like the last chapter, but not the only, it's been others before that. So, I heard we're like know, the my, fifth. 
I don't yeah, know. Yeah, right. True. Well, based based on, on on the evidence that I have that I've been able to uncover so far. Um, uh, but yeah. Um, so you know, extrapolating back from that, over you know, looking at at uh, at Richard's alignments back, you know, Cydonia, uh, looking at the solstice alignment. You know, he was looking at possible possible alignments uh, with with Earth and uh, well, in the Sun, the summer solstice, sunrise, um, just the overall alignment of uh, the Cydonia complex, the face, the city, and so forth. Uh, about a half a million years ago, and so that that's sort of that's you know that's five hundred thousand years. We're talking maybe three hundred thousand years on Earth. So maybe you're not that far. Maybe there was maybe a prior civilization on Earth made it to Mars and 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 put these things there. Um, and so that's you know that's one possibility. It's a, again an attempt to try to close the gap. Uh, but you know, uh, John has really kind of rocked my world with this with this R process hypothesis now, and 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 looking at you know at it from an even more ancient perspective in terms of the yugas and the Vedic traditions of things happening over you know hundreds of millions of years, is it possible there there was a widespread advanced civilization on Mars, uh, a, an earlier version of would have been humanity. It would have been consciousness. It would have been, um, you know, it would have been something precursor to 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 uh, to humanity. Uh, who knows? But you know, again, you got. It, it, you, I, I don't like to spend a lot of time on this because it's so it's so speculative. Um, mm-hmm. So what you try to do is is try to find the nugget, like like. Oh, what's that? Okay, somebody's I think moving furniture. Somebody's got uh, unmuted. Okay, continue, <laughs> Mark. Uh, anyway, so um, I mean, it's, it's it's there's so much room for for, for speculation, and I the way, so the the way I've I've tried to perceive recently is try to find the nuggets and then work out from them, and if you can use you know, legend and myth, and this is, of course, as it pertains to Earth, because we have a lot of that, uh, you know, that's sort of, the, you know, I've been talking about context. Um, that, that's, I think, a, a, perhaps a way of, 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 you know, generating some new hypothesis based on data uh, that, you know, is kind of consistent with sort of what we know. Maybe uh, it's uncertain, but we know something about it. The problem with Mars is that other than physical, um, you know, uh, data like John's uh, identified uh, with, you know, these a- ages of the, you know, the meteorites and, and the R process, the thermonuclear explosion on Mars and being able to establish a chronology, you know, aside from that, we've got that, we've got the city in face. It's like, okay, is this plausible? Could this have been created within this period of time? But, you know, it's like there's a lot of missing information. We don't know, like, how quickly things become eroded on Mars. We know mm-hmm. we have some idea on Earth. Can we extrapolate? Can we come up with the models for Mars? You know, the people that can do this, the, the uh, you know, the archaeologists and the geoscientists on, that, that do that sort of thing here uh, in mainstream science would not touch this problem. And that's, that's the problem. So we have to sort of, we have to sort of do it ourselves. 
Um, and so that, that's kind of the situation we're in right now. Maybe with the UAP situation changing now, some scientists are starting to take it seriously. And I know, uh, I know Dick wanted to talk about, you know, NASA's new perspective on, um, on, on uh, perhaps on UAP and the solar system on, you know, maybe a new they have on, on uh, artifacts on Mars and finding artifacts on Mars. That may be a new a new chapter. I don't know. Um, we can all be cautiously optimistic, but otherwise, it's you know there's there's a lot we, we're trying to fill in, and um, I think we've got to do that. Otherwise, we're just kind of talking around and around, and it's like yes, yeah, it's, it's it's a cool idea, but you got to be able to test it. You need to you know do some experiments, and and that's sort of that's what I do. That's what I like to do. That's what John likes to do, and we've been talking about a little bit that that tonight and others, you know, and, and uh, their ideas and, and, you know, it's going to take a village to figure this out, but I think we need, we just need mm -hmm. more data and we need, you know, we need to, um, to really think about it in a more, I don't know, um, uh, uh, I'm just kind of late here. I'm kind of losing the bubble, but we mm -hmm. need to be a little bit more objective yeah. about it. I think. I think we need a, a Martian uh, Robert shock. Ron comes close to that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, maybe we can give Ron can anyone hear me? I had a question for Mark. Okay, I've been quiet. So go ahead, Ron. Okay. Uh, why are we limiting our evidence? What do you, I mean, you said we need to look at our evidence, and yet Mars is covered with ruins. Every place they've taken pictures from the uh, orbitals, uh, we can see that there's evidence of civilization there megalithic though it was everybody concentrates on a couple of spots if we could go there physically and you know sift our gloved fingers through the dust and stuff that would be different but we can't we're just going up with a rover which takes it which is careful to take the pictures as obliquely as possible most of the time but i mean there's plenty more you can't limit right. your evidence and expect to get a valid conclusion that's all yeah they're, no, they're not no you're right it, it's and it's it, it's sort of a, it's a double standard because if, if it were if it were Earth and we saw all this stuff we would definitely go there and dig there'd be no question about it. The problem is that we haven't established uh, with beyond a reasonable doubt that there's anything on Mars other than stuff we've put there that's artificial. I mean, have you looked at the look, pictures? Everyone session? has their own standards of evidence, right? Some people's standards are higher than others. NASA has an incredibly high standard of evidence that I maintain is so high that they'll never accept anything as being artificial on Mars because it's not going to meet their criteria. Uh, Mark, but Mark. there's the other Can you try looking at the other picture section. The other, the other stream. Why do I have to ask that so hard? Ron, stop interrupting. The pictures are for you. Stop interrupting. Go ahead, Mark. Sorry. There's Sorry, it's uh, I'm just. Trying to just trying to characterize this kind of we're, you're sort of we're bracketing a whole range of, of uh, uh, what we consider acceptable levels of evidence, and we just have to recognize that. Mark, um, Mark until I'm, we know for sure, it's all circumstantial, right? Okay. Until we until we actually go there, Mark, it's all circumstantial. Mark, I'm yeah. I'm gonna tell you something. When I found that curve, and Earl Torn expanded on it. And Richard wrote about it in, in his second edition of the Monuments of Mars, okay? He just said, we're looking at the curve. Didn't say what it was. NASA didn't know any better. So they took a high-res shot across that big pyramid that the curve starts out from around. And that's when I said they just shot themselves in the foot. Because when you look at that pyramidal structure, 
you see these humps or ridges. One runs down one side of the pyramid, goes out across the flat plain, connects to the first mound, which is more is circular. Another one comes down another section of that pyramid, goes out across the flat plain, connects to the second mound, which is a little more oval. And a third one comes down and connects to the third mound, which is clearly oval. Now, if nature did that, I don't see how they could have done it, let alone making these things connect like that. That's artificiality. That is not natural. So NASA shot themselves in the foot by taking that picture. So right there, you have another confirmation that this can't be luck. Nature doesn't space things exponentially. And Dan Drazen pointed out from the center of the, the city square to the edge of the fort, that distance doubles to get from the edge of the fort out to the teardrop on the face. And then that distance doubles from the teardrop on the face to get out to the cliff. And I use that as my criteria for looking at the mounds that were starting out from around the big pyramid. And they were exponentially spaced, except the fifth mound in that arrangement was shy of being exponential of between the third and fourth. Skip it goes to the sixth one and it's exactly double the distance of the third and fourth. I'm wondering why doesn't the fifth one fit? That's when Earl came along, laid down the logarithmic function of e-graph over top of the area, and that fifth mound was part of the y-axis. And I knew at that point there's no way Earl could have made that up. My ruler, and I wasn't thinking X and Y when I found this stuff, I'd put it down, and sure enough, there it was. And why would the the five-sided pyramid, the DNM, and the city square be perfectly aligned along that y-axis, it's, it's artificial. Math doesn't lie. Okay, so let me, let me just comment on that. So in, in Viking, uh, at, in 35A72, this is a low sun angle image, Cydonia, the face, look remarkably artificial. It's shocking how NASA could have dismissed that in any, as they did. However, in higher sun angle, um, then it's, 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 it, it appears a little less remarkable. And in fact, when you go to high resolution, Mars Global Surveyor, Mars Odyssey, other, other more recent uh, sensors, where you're starting to see all the, all the imperfections, all the erosion, all the little craters and rocks and, and, and mass wasting and slumping and all these other things going on. It's like, you know, maybe this is an eroded landform. And so a, a natural landform. And so when you start getting really close up, you don't see, um, you don't see, you know, in Cydonia, uh, I'm going to say, you don't see machine parts and uh, vehicles and stuff like that. As you zoom up, you see just a lot of rocks and stuff like that. However, what, what you do see is you do actually see um, structure in these patterns that seems, it seems like it's, um, you know, you, you it seems architectural. You mentioned the curve and in the face, there are some repeated geometries in that. And certainly in Cydonia, there's repeated geometries. The problem is when you start getting really close and you start measuring things in high resolution imagery, it, it's not, it's not, this, it's not, you know, you're using a more precise yardstick and it's like, Hmm, it's not quite that. So it's not exact. It's not a dead ringer. You know, it's not like the three, four, five monoliths in 2001 or whatever, you know, the proportions mm, of that was. Yeah, you can't it's do a little measurements for the fuzzy picture is what you're saying. Yeah, I like so, to uh, I like to mention yeah. that um, 
in my items, there is, uh, on the sculpture, there is this movement of the light, especially the last image. And it, it, it highlights what you're saying, Mark, about how it seems to shift from being so obvious to like, well, is it or isn't it? Because the, as the light moves, the shape really does seem to change. That that said, you know, there's still a lot of architecture in that face. And if you want to have an experience of it, um, I really suggest you take a look at the animations. There are two animations there of the Mars face done with a 3D model. And then there's the animation with the light over the sculpted model. And you you do get that sense what you're talking about, Mark, that... It, wow, it's really there. And then you wonder, well, is it really there? So I see what you're saying. But that's, but that's actually, that's actually okay. Uh, you know, and it's not, it's, it's not, that doesn't say that it's, it's not artificial. Um, it's just interesting. What I mean by that is, you know, if you hold, um, before MGS collected the new image back in 1998, uh, we went out to NASA and uh, we met with uh, Glenn Cunningham and, and Arden Albee, the, the guy that, that uh, almost punched uh, Vin, uh, Vince out that John was talking about. This That's was a few right. Weeks, uh, a few weeks before that. And uh, he, um, you know, we, we were talking about the different uh, possible outcomes of what, you know, what JPO would do. And basically their, their, their position was they were going to just release the imagery and do nothing. And what they released was the so-called cat box image. Uh, yeah. Uh, Lon, Lon, Lon Fleming, uh, I, I think it was Lon, that named it that. And, uh, you know, because of the way, not so much the way it was, at first it seemed it was because of the, the, um, the time of day and the season, just the sort of the image conditions. But they had processed it in a way that removed all of the information. But that said, it was it was illuminated from below, like a, sort of like a flashlight holding a flashlight under your face, and you know it. The impression of a of a face of something believable, of something that's anthropomorphic, whatever, is it, like well, I, I I don't I don't buy it anymore with with that angle. And so you know, it's under some conditions, it's not going to look the same way. That's you know, in the Viking afternoon, summer afternoon lighting um, that we see in 35A72, it's remarkable. But in 7813, which is the second image that uh, Vince and Greg found, uh, it was higher sun angle, and it still kind of looked like a face, but it was a little, it was a little weird, a little, odd, you know, more, more odd, oddly shaped. Um, and so, you know, it's, I don't know. It's called. What's the movie? Uh, it says, you know, it's it's complicated. Mission to Mars. No, it's, no, no. It's uh, it's a Billy Crystal movie. I'm thinking about. It's, uh, I think. Oh, Spaceballs. Maybe. It, <laughs> no, it's it's, uh, it's. I think it's called It's Complicated or something like that. Mark, anyway. Oh. Um, wait, wait a minute here, Mark. Uh, there's there's the whole thing with the the Morgan curve. Okay. I can take again. I could Wait a minute. I was asking be, him a legitimate Ron, question, and you Ron, jump in to talk about something else. That's not fair, Keith. Ron. You want to mute me? Go yeah. ahead, but it won't help. Uh, okay, it won't help. But, Ron, just chill for a second, okay? 
You're gonna let me ask you're you're gonna, questions. You're gonna make me miss. You're gonna again? make me lose my thought of train train of thought. Okay, so no, you'll bring it up again in another ten Ron, minutes. Come on, I'm Mark. Ready. What I'm trying to say is that math doesn't lie. Geometry is geometry. Okay, I can take that so that Morgan curve, the X and Y, the the circles that go around the mounds that I put on the whole thing, group it together, resize it and it fits over the European Space Agency shot with their orthographically correct photo of Sidonia perfectly. I can do it with this, the Mars uh, uh, Odyssey thermos image. I can take that because it's orthographically corrected, which you did with the original raw data photo, and I can lay it over top of that image, just resize it, not move any of the circles or anything like that, and it fits perfectly every time, and they all fall over the same mounds exactly. If this was some kind of of light and shadow, that shouldn't happen. This is math. This is geometry. No, but, okay, so so let me. I, this is a, a a small point. I don't know. Maybe it's a big point. I don't know. It's late. I'm kind of losing losing it right now. But the point I want to make is that. Um, it, it, I'm not saying it's not artificial, but when you have a, a, like a set of things that are aligned, you say, oh, okay, these are, these are perfectly aligned uh, or aligned to, you know, some accuracy and, and, you know, and you make that statement. It's like, okay, well, there's a probability though that nature can conspire for that to happen and you say, okay, well, what's the chance of that happening? Well, it's a million. It's a million to one, and you can compute that based on how precisely something's aligned. So you say, okay, it's a million to one. So it's like, oh, this obviously this is I, it's a smoking gun. Obviously, it's it's highly improbable that this would happen. However, if there are thousands of objects in the that you're looking at, you, which your you know your data set, you look at all the combinations that things can happen, and it turns out can happen. Uh, sort of pathologically, it, this can happen. And I'm just, I'm, I'm not saying that they do, but when you, when you look, when you bring statistics in and you want to say, okay, well, this is, you know, a dead ringer for perfect alignment. Well, you have to say, okay, you have to qualify this. Say, well, within, within what accuracy? And then when you say then even, you know, it's a million to one um, that it's, that it's artificial, um, then you have to also look at, well, how many other objects are there? If there's thousands of objects and this, you know, and this occurs once or twice, then it's not statistically significant. I only bring this up because it's boring. We don't want to hear it. But when you try to convince, uh, you know, scientists of your argument, this is, these are the questions they ask. And this is, uh, I've gotten beat up, so I know this stuff because I've gotten beat up over it. And so I don't get, I don't want to get beat up anymore. So that's why I, I, I try to line my ducks up and I, you know, and you have this information so you can say, well, this is the probability, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you're still left with, it could happen. It's still circumstantial. Mark, only, Mark, Mark, I really don't want to speak that, to that, it. That's, that's the final Nobody analysis, right? Yeah. Okay. Mark, Dr. Horst Crater calculated. I asked you for it. I waited. Let me ask you a question. Can I ask my question to Mark? He's not going to be here in you know in another three hours. Please, I just want to ask him to look at one. Uh, my section. You hit on Ron, the ugly name there. Uh, look at number seven. That's all. Just all right, let at. me. 
go on. Let me go online here. Hold on. Uh, the other side. The other side. Good night. Just the one. Okay. Um, so we. Uh, In the fast the link, you can click on Ron's items. Yeah. Are the fast links on the on the left side? They're throughout the page. They're right okay. at the first thing when you click on the banner is you get to a page that says guest things and it says bios below that under guest stuff. Uh, just click oh, on my name. Oh yeah, I I, I remember seeing that, but uh, nothing. Uh, I can put on. it in the okay. chat. I'll just put it in the oh, chat. Okay, I got it. I got it. Okay, okay. so I'm, I'm going under Ron, right? Yeah, yeah Ron's yeah, item. Okay, number Ron, seven. Okay. Okay, let's see. Numbers. Uh, I clicked on run, but it took me. Took uh, you to the bio. No, Here, I'm uh, dropping it in the chat. There you go. This is in the Skype in the Skype chat. Yeah. Is that going to is yeah. that going to provide an excuse level? I hope not. The picture is pretty high res if you can get to the page, but it's uh, or the lower part is the um, obviously a small version of that picture taken by Mars Express. And it's got two little arrows on it. And the things that the two little arrows are pointed at are grouped right next to each other. Uh, and they're exactly, they're pretty much exactly the same size uh, in the top part. The one on the right is the infamous face. The one on the left looks like a copper mask, the same size as the face, but it's about 12 miles away. Now, is that a coincidence? I'm not saying I know what it is, but it's certainly not natural. We have hard evidence, and I don't just mean that. Okay, oh, here we go. So, Ron, I'm sorry, what uh, what number is this? Oh, uh, number seven. seven? Yeah. Seven, okay. <laughs> so and then when you, you click on the image, it'll blow up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, this, is, this is on the, is this on the far side of the city? The side of the it's, city opposite. It's, there's a little arrow next to it. It's the lower part of there is a, is a reduced version of the, uh, but it's the whole picture oh, uh, of the of the ESA picture. And there's a little arrow oh, showing you where the face is and where it is. Oh, I see. Okay, I got it. Yeah. I'm not saying they have to match together, but I was surprised they were the same size. You know, this and, this is something actually that Dan Drayson first noticed that the the scale of these objects, they're, they're all roughly the same size. You look at the face, you look at the starfish pyramid, um, a couple other pyramids, the city. And it, it was an interesting observation that he met, made that we're not looking at like an order of magnitude. They're all roughly, you know, a mile or so in, in size, uh, which was kind of interesting. And this is uh, looks like it's the same, too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I see that. I actually hadn't noticed that before. Yeah, I hadn't noticed it either until I until I did a super enlargement of the uh, European picture. But it is, as somebody said, it's ortho ortho regular and very very high resolution compared to anything NASA has given us. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I have to take a look. Uh, you know, because you can go. Uh, all fun. You, take a look at all of them. <laughs> I don't know time. if you used uh, Google Earth, but you can go. You know, you can go to no. uh, Google Mars. And uh, in fact, I'm going to really? do that right now. <laughs> cool. Have you ever done Google? No, I didn't know we had a Google Mars. 
So you go to Google Earth and you go under View, Explorer, and Mars. I'm going to do that right now, and I'm going to see if I can find this. The little green thing? Uh, Let's see. While you're looking for that, um, in my section, there is number five. It, these are stills from the animation that I created with a ABC graphic artist back in 1994. And um, Dr. Horace Crater and Dr. Stanley McDaniel, when I first introduced them to the Morgan Curve, uh, Dr. Horace Crater said it was a one in a million chance that these things align that way. And Dr. Hor- uh, Stanley McDaniel said, uh, the Morgan Curve. So that's why I grabbed the name and said, okay, that's what I'm going to associate with it. But when I created this animation, I took that ray in the first three images of uh, number five. And first, I'm drawing a line to the, from the fifth, sixth mound to the fourth mound. And then same distance, I end up in the center of another mound. I took that ray, I duplicated it. I had the graphic artist swing it over to third mound. And do you know what that angle is dead center through that mound? 19.5. What's the face offset to north by? 19.5. Okay. Keith, we're at the bottom of the hour. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm blowing through the break. Uh, We'll be back in a moment as soon as I get my act together. And you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. And our guests are Dr. Brandenburg, John E. Brandenburg, and Dr. Mark Carlotto. And we will be back in a moment. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Holdwin and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. to the other side of midnight. I'm going to cut this a little short here. Um, I haven't been able to get Robert's stuff up because it's kind of hard to um, host and post at the same time. So um, I'm going to try to get to, to Robert's things and get them up as quickly as possible. 
But uh, I wanted to let Dr. Carlotto know that uh, item number five, this shows the the animation stills from uh, the curve and how that uh, that 19.5 degree angle is is there. And when I swing that angle over to a 45 degrees, that was the one that really, really excited me because going up the other angle, the other ray at the 45 degree angle, that cuts through one of the mounds that is connected to the big pyramid that the curve starts out from around. Just like the fourth one is on the other side. And uh, I'm going to get back to, to the group here in a second. So let me, let me do that because somebody is calling me. Okay. My co-host is back. Cindy, are you there? Okay. You cut everybody else out. I, I didn't unmute the guys yet. So you're unmuted now. So can you guys now speak up? Yeah, you couldn't hear us before. Because I hadn't finished saying what I was saying. So please, you can continue. We've already got a dictator for the press. The well, what I wanted to say, uh, Keith, when you were talking about uh, the NASA turning pictures upside down, that's a perfect example of what I call NASA disinformation technology. It's kind of geometric trickery, which is why I advise people when NASA puts out a picture with an arrow pointing at something, don't look where the arrow is pointing because they're hiding something else in another section of the picture. Robert has a good point there. <laughs> well, thank you. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That's good. That's so, good. again, that's what I describe as NASA disinformation technology. And with regard to the, the slant range picture, which I'm referring to, I hope it gets up, that I rectified. When it came out, I looked at it and I said to myself, oh, damn, it's only a rock. And then I started to watch all the news uh, broadcasts. And I started to hear all the newscasters saying, as you can see, folks, it's only a rock. And it's only a rock. And then I opened up a newspaper article. I think it was the New York Times. And they were quoting some Dr. Cunningham, a planetary geologist. And he said, as you can see, it's just an ordinary rock outcrop. And I said, wait a second. Wait a second. How can everybody, including me, start saying it's only a rock? So if you remember the original publication, it was just a slant strip. It was a long strip, and it was slanted at an angle. And so I said, let me get my straight edge. I did a vertical, and I did a straight edge, and two angles emerged. They were not uh, symmetrical. One angle on one side produced the angle of the base of the Great Pyramid. But the other angle was 19.5 degrees. And I said to myself, oh, these bastards at NASA, this is a real sick joke. They're pulling on Richard Hoagland. So that's when I got the picture and I put it in the computer and straightened it out, rectified it, and stretched it to be able to do the uh, the five faces of Mars decrypted. But uh, let's give Ron another chance to do something with his photographs because I know he's put a lot of work into these. So, uh, Ron, what would you like to tell us about? Uh, Actually, the other one to look at is number one. 
That's it. I mean, I'll let people peruse the Cydonia thing. Everybody's talking about all these old things. But the Gale City, which is something that uh, NASA virtually called it that themselves. It's the only thing I ever felt like wanting to name. Because I said, look at this. It's a whole bleeping city. And uh, they recently, like a month ago, JPL took another picture of it that they were, uh, I mean, you know, the Curiosity rover took the pictures, but JPL has been releasing these mosaics. And uh, the earlier one uh, is on the left. The newer one is on the right. And it's been well altered. That was the whole big point for me of the uh, of the show tonight. It's tangible evidence that they screwed with the picture. It's warped. Uh, if anybody's familiar with something called the push tool, standard, uh, you know, on Adobe Photoshop or PaintShop Pro or two or three others, where you, it's sort of like pushing paint with your finger. You know, you can move things around. They did that on the right-hand picture so that it wouldn't look so much like a city like it does on the left. And there's a companion picture that shows Chichen Itza, so you can get the idea of what I think the architecture resembles. The Chichen Itza pictures from 1890-something, uh, color-toned by me. And the, um, uh, but the NASA, the Gale City pictures are, well, one of them's from 2005. That's the older one. And the newer one's from a month or so ago, or two ago. And the fact that they don't match, same thing from a rover plowing toward the same direction is um, interesting to me. Uh, beyond that, I expect comment. I want people to rail and say, no, they look fine, or no, that's just a pile of mud, you know, or I see what you mean, you know, all those. Yeah, no, I, it, it, I, I, I get that. I get that impression. And, um, you know, I, 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 I hate people, you know, I hate wet blankets and I'm not going to do it, but I'm just going to say this, that um, I, I remember back in the day of uh, the Clementine mission to, to the moon, uh, John, uh, John and I, uh, he kind of showed me around the control center and, and we, I got like three orbits worth of data and I was looking at some of, some of the Clementine data and it was like really oblique shots low sun and or low sun angle. And I'll tell you that it gives you the impression of rectilinear structures and ruins and all that, because when you look at it, you know, I found a lot of these in lunar reconnaissance orbiter and it's like, Oh yeah, it's, it's not, it's not remarkable. And it's, it's like the way you look at it, but I definitely get the, get what you're saying. And, and that said, I mean, it could be, it, it, it's possible. Uh, because, you know, I mean, like John was saying, you know, if, if there was this, if there was a previous civilization on Mars 300 million years ago, 400 million years ago, and it was destroyed, what would it look like? It, it probably would look like that. Off that. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a big puzzle. Yeah, right. Millions, trying to track millions. it down for decades to find yeah. out why it looks like our stuff to the point where it has to obviously be our stuff, but we didn't go up there and do it. This was indigenous and then it traveled here because it's a mixture of styles. You know, that gets to the architecture stuff after the, the whole archaeology show, because you're absolutely right. Just like my Braun said on- You're breaking up, Werner von Braun said on 240 something in his autobiography, which was of course carefully screened by his handler, uh, that on the first trip to Mars, the astronauts you want to send have to have artists 
and archaeologists. And so I, I don't know how anybody said it any better than that since. Yeah. By the way, while I have a chance here, I want to tell Mark that I put in the chat, I put the Antarctica uh, photos that we did with the program, uh, the webpage that we did for the Antarctica pyramids and the Turtle Cave and a crater that I believe was made by a, a meteor impact that melted a beautiful scalloped ice sheet. So if you look in the in the chat a little bit farther up, you'll you'll see what I'm talking about, the geometry of the pyramids. And I'm still waiting for my picture to come up eventually, hopefully. Okay, back to you. Well, I, I'd like to jump in. I, I really want Mark to tell us how to get to Google Mars. We got to Google Earth. <laughs> Fair enough. I want, oh, yeah, I want so, to go exploring. Okay, so if you have Google Earth, just go to um, the top menu on see View. It's okay. it's far over from the left. Okay. Go down to Explore. Explore. I see Search Voyager Projects Map. Where's Explore? That's the menu that's on the left, that hamburger so, menu. No, no, no. So if you go, so you're you're in Google Earth Pro, and uh, the menu I have it has Google Earth Pro File Edit Tools Add Window Help <laughs> across the top. All right. So if you go under View, do you see View there in the top menu? Uh, no. All right. Well, then I guess I'm not going to take everyone. Oh, I know you're, you're probably, you may be using the the the, uh, the browser version, the web-based version. Right. This is called there's a program called Google Earth Pro. I'm okay. running it on a. I think you might be able to get it on a PC, but in Google Earth Pro, uh, for under View, there's something that lets you go to a secondary menu that says Explore, and you can choose between, and this is really cool, between the Earth, the sky, Mars, and the Moon. Okay. All right. Well. I will get that program because that sounds really it cool. Yeah. Thank it's you. It's free. It's Thank free, you. yeah. Yeah. Super. Well, that's and something okay. we haven't heard all night. So Silence. Wow. Yeah. So uh, just one question. You know, I was looking in the chat here, and I, I'm running uh, Skype on my on my cell phone. I don't see a, a chat thing. Can I get to it on the uh, on the website? on um, the other side of midnight.com, the uh, pictures of Antarctica. Actually, I actually put in the, the link to the website. The um, oh. In the chat, there is a, a, a web address, which is the web page for that program and the items that I submitted then. I just can't seem to find the chat, but I am on the I, I am on the other side of midnight website. Can I get to it that way? Mm, I don't know. Can see you might tell you. You know what I'm going to do? I'll copy the link and send it to you by email. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. Thanks. That's I'll take a look. Easy. Yeah, that would go in the Skype page. I or the Skype screen. If that's easier. Mm-hmm. A link, I mean, if you send him a link. Yeah. Let's see. Well, if you want to write out the link, it's um, it's not that hard. It's okay. the, other side, the other side of midnight.com forward yep. slash 2018. 
Robert-Morningstar. The other side of midnight.com. Yeah, the other side of midnight.com forward slash 2018-1-21-Robert-Morningstar forward slash. Easy enough, but I'll still send it to you. I'm very happy. That was a great program, and I was very happy with how the uh, photographs and the analysis. I I labeled the... um, the sections and uh, use letters to point out the important um, geometries that uh, were there. The Eye of Ra is also very interesting with regard to this mountain uh, where there is a really beautiful, what I consider to be an impact crater because my only explanation for the perfect scallop, circular scallop in the ice sheet is that tremendous heat must have melted it and created an eye that is reminiscent to me of the eye of Ra. So, uh, oh, yeah, okay, so I, I have the page up and I see this, and honestly, I have not seen this pyramid. What I, what I have been able to find in Antarctica are structures that look pyramidal, mm-hmm. but when you look at them from ground level, they're very low-relief features. They're not pyramids at all. They're... Um, uh, but this this looks completely different. I'd love yep. to know the coordinates of this. You don't happen to know that, do you? Uh, I'd have to search them. I did find it. I did find it uh, once or twice. Also, when uh, Buzz Aldrin, when Buzz Aldrin uh, flipped out, he he said it's something totally evil. He produced a picture of a pyramid, which was excellent in uh, in Twitter. Maybe we can track that one down. But. Uh, I'll try to find the coordinates. I did find it a okay. couple of times. And there are other things under the snow or under the ice in the same region that are uh, quite telling. Interesting. Okay. I, I, I'd, love to, I'd love to check this out because I would go, if I have the coordinates, I'll just go to Google Earth and, and, and find it there. Um, right. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks, Robert. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Now, when the, when the images that I submitted come up, if we run out of time, I do want uh, you to look at that, uh, the item that's called the Five Horrible UFO Experiences of the Military, because it deals with the deleterious effects of being exposed to UFOs. One deals with a, a troop of American soldiers in Korea during the Korean War who had an encounter with a UFO that irradiated them and made them all sick and they had to be uh, evacuated. And then the, uh, the Russian incident, which as I said, comes from, is very well depicted. It comes from a CIA document, which is included there. So Ron the skeptic can read the CIA document uh, as they have produced it, as I found it 20 years ago in the Blue Book files. Blue Book is supposedly Air Force uh, UFO research, but when I found the archive at the U.S. Air Force Library in Huntsville, Alabama, I found that there were hundreds of pages, CIA documents in there, and clippings from newspapers. Uh, The CIA had assigned newspaper clippers all over the world. Anytime anything came out with a UFO report, uh, they would send it in. And there was a very interesting, kind of humorous to me, article about a UFO incident in uh, Kazakhstan 
that the UFO appeared over a transmission tower on top of a mountain. So the cops got in their cars and raced up the mountain, you know, at high speed to figure out what, who is this intruder. And all of a sudden, they found themselves back at the police station, sitting around the table and befuddled, not knowing how they got back to the police station. So there's quite interesting, uh, very interesting yeah. files in there. So these are the, some of the mind control effects that the uh, alien technology can exercise on human beings, uh, including superimposing um, hallucinations on your vision, uh, erasing mes- uh, memory so that you wind up with what is popularly called missing time. But uh, that's one item. And of course, uh, the last item is the uh, composite, the five, uh, the five pictures that emerge when you decrypt the face on Mars, the 1998 slant range picture. So that's all I want to say, and I hope that they get up. So if not, uh, come back to the page and check them out. I think they're worthwhile. Hey, uh, Dr. Brandenburg, you still around? You still there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Okay, I, I, Robert just reminded me of something. Is it? You're the perfect person to ask because you're Mr. Radioactive Mars. Um, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Uh, it's they nice call me Lion Man of Oz. Okay. Uh, no, I don't think you're cowardly at all. Uh, the uh, No, the thing is, I had this crazy idea, and I saw it bounced on the what was one day going to be called the Internet many, many years ago, uh, about the face, that, uh, and it connected with Pathfinder, and the idea was that maybe we had sent a little package back to blow it up because it was so dis- the, those first two pictures that circulated so much got people so upset. Do you think there's any chance that we might have taken a pot shot at it with an uh, aerial explosion? Because it shows I, evidence. I, I think that's very unlikely. The new pictures look pretty much like the old pictures. I mean, pictures taken with Odyssey, and then now the more recent pictures taken with MGS. You know, and Mark can attest to this. It's just well, why haven't they taken anything since higher then? resolution pictures of uh, the original Sidonia Viking pictures? They don't really show that much more. And as I've emphasized to people, all archaeology looks like hell if you look at it under the right lighting, and if, especially if you look at it in great detail. It's full of you know, broken stuff, and, you know, you, you have to look at pictures of the Sphinx mm-hmm. when it was first starting to be photographed, and if they didn't take it in the right light, it looks like hell. It just doesn't, you know, well, you, know, you can finally first... pick out eyes, and, and uh, well, in, its nose got apparently shot off by somebody, the French and I the Turks, I, I... who did that. I but know that's... the story on who did that, if anybody cares. I, I did. Hey, Ron. Well, I just, yeah, what? So what? When, when, when they were saying, you know, when people were saying, oh, it got bombed, you know, I immediately said to Richard, no, because, like, I agree with John here, because in sculpting that face over and over and over again, I could still see in the MGS, or at that time, it was even the cat box. They hadn't even corrected 
the, right. the uh, processing, yeah, right. I could still see the the features that were in the original photos because I had sculpted them over and over, and it didn't matter that the photo wasn't fully processed; it was there, and uh, you know, I oh, I didn't yes, see I, any I new holes that. occurring. I sat up all night, you know, looking at each little part of that picture. And I realized, oh, my God, this thing is taken at an oblique angle. It's not taken from up above like the, you know, the Viking yeah. pictures. Right, right. And it's, and it's also illuminated from below, you know, and, you know, like the flashlight under your face in a dark room. It looks very strange. And, and, and I just thought, oh, these people have deliberately contrived this picture so it'll look unartificial as possible. It'll look as unfamiliar as possible. Right. Because I find those explanations ex- acceptable from both of you. I just wanted I just wanted the feedback. Thanks. But even <laughs> even as as strange as it looked, you could still see the original features there. Oh, I know what well, you're saying. Well, you know what? Here, let me tell you. I was actually with Vince DePietro. We were up in New Hampshire working on um on on plasmas and when this whole thing happened and we're sitting in the hotel finally looking at the new picture and and then we're both very disappointed because you know it looks doesn't look like it looks like something in a cat litter box and so we (laughs) so we're sitting there drinking beer uh we started drinking uh, earlier in the night at the restaurant across <laughs> from the uh, parking lot, and we had a few beers and we had a few more. And then um, anyway, we ended up back at the hotel, and Vince couldn't sleep, so he called, give me a call, and he says, "Come on up here, let's have some more beer." So we're <laughs> sitting there, and you know, because we thought, okay, maybe they've disproved it. You know, maybe I'm going they over have. to your place. What kind of beer do you have? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So he had a bunch of beer in the room, and I'm sitting there drinking these beers. And I'm half Viking, by the way, you know, like Molinar. Oh. And, yeah, and well, so, I'm part anyway, Welsh. So we're looking. Oh, the Welsh. Oh, my God. <laughs> so so anyway, we're watching the coverage, and there's just this big talk fest on It's Only a Rock and how, how relieved everyone is. And then they put – this NASA scientist or JPL scientist, uh, his name's Albie, and he's, they interview him and he says, we told you it was just rock and, and now we've proved it. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I thought, God, he looks like he's seen a ghost. Why isn't he happy? And I said to Vince, this guy should have, you know, why isn't he happy? And Vince says, yeah. He's not happy at all. He looks like he's rather haunted, in fact. And that got me thinking, you know, oh, my God, would, have they pulled a fast one on us? Yeah. And so I, I got the picture downloaded on my laptop, and I started looking at it very carefully. And I, I did my own enhancement, basically. And by morning, I had been able to sketch it, you know, 
it from viewed from an oblique angle and i realized oh my god it's got nostrils in the nose and ornaments on the helmet and and you know some straight line sections you can see and i realized oh my god they've tried to bamboozle us so i yep. showed it to vince and you know i just showed and i and it was all just done with drawings now mark very superbly used his three-dimensional models from shape from shading of the Viking pictures to construct a three-dimensional model of it and then stretch the um, uh, picture, the new picture at its oblique angle across that and then rotated it so it was as viewed from above. And I don't mean it looked like the the lion man from wizard of oz like hey i like the movie but you know it's no it just all it uh, all it did is it had a big nose with nostrils in it that's all that's all i mean and have you, you know, ever seen I the gotta... face temple in belize what's that uh, the pic- i'm staring at the picture here at home but i it's not part of the package today there's a place in belize called lamanai and there's something there called the, it's a mayan temple called the face temple and it looks just like your friendly face. Well, uh, yeah, I, I'd like it's to see that. It's about 18 feet uh, high. You know, I, I'm a very big fan of the Olmec heads, which are, you know, mm-hmm. faces inside helmets. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, and they have, some of them have symmetric components mm-hmm. on the helmets, and some of them are anti you know, not symmetric. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Mark? Uh what, what do I think? Uh, it's 2:58 Eastern time, and I have to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> so I'm going to say I'm going to say it's been a pleasure, and uh, and I'm going to have to say good night. Okay, good night, Mark. Wonderful having you on the show, Mark. And Thanks, guys. We've run Thank out of runway, you. guys. One last question. What? I'm but, sorry, I got a in this could there be some kind of psychic inspiration between the wizard of oz and the face <laughs> oh absolutely John, I'll have an anything is possible uh, robert heinlein well, thought so, anyway, so be, good, night, know, all. good night good night